Hello, sorry, pardon my, my fat fingers there, double-clicking on the intro video. My name's Topher, and this is a slow chat. For those of you familiar with the format, you will have already grabbed yourself uh, something to drink. I've got a nice, uh, big, hot mug of black tea. I've also got, uh, courtesy of a mate of mine, uh, a little bit of Nikka whiskey. This is a Japanese whiskey, which I'll be enjoying tonight. Uh, it's with a K, by the way, not a G, so the sensors can leave me alone there, Nikka. Um, and I will be enjoying, uh, so the slow chats for those that are new, I should explain the slow chats have evolved from me basically sitting down with a cigar and some whiskey and my audience and, and those that wanted to join me and spending an hour and a half two to sometimes two and a half hours unpacking a subject, uh, and really thinking it through, talking about it, chatting back and forth in the comments, etc. Uh, and my way of relaxing and my way of de-stressing, uh, is with one of these amazing creations, uh, oh, Dave, I'll get you. Yeah, there we go. One of these amazing creations uh, called a cigar. It is one of my vices. Uh, it is a vice that I very much enjoy. Uh, and as people say to me, oh, they're bad for you. Yes, they're, they're bad for my body. I don't deny that, but they're very good for my mind. Uh, and if it so happens that this is what kills me, you know what? I'm okay with that. Uh, looking smart in the black jacket, I didn't know that my intelligence was related to uh, the the clothing I wore, but it's actually just a bit chilly, so I'm uh, I'm wearing the jacket tonight. So I'm going to enjoy one of these, black tea, some whiskey, and an amazing chat with a really, really interesting human being, someone that I had the pleasure of actually meeting in person a few years ago. I am, of course, talking about Senator Malcolm Roberts. We're going to get him on in just a minute. However, today marks a little bit of a uh, an occasion in my life as Topher, and I want to mention it very, very briefly. So Topher started, many of you know the story, almost by accident 12 years ago because my cousin said to me I should make a video. So I did and I put it online and one thing led to another. People started asking me to make more videos. It was kind of an accident and I've never really had a strategy or a plan. I'm not a, I'm not a man with a plan to steal a line out of a movie. Um, or do I look like a man with a plan? Well, I'm not. Um, however, one thing has led to another and we're now in a situation where we find ourselves pretty much fighting for our lives, as I see it now, with what's going on with the coronavirus, all the restrictions, what's happening to our liberties, our freedom, our freedom of, of speech, our freedom of conscience, our rights to our own body, etc. Uh, and so I feel as though I need to start taking this a little bit more seriously, because for whatever reason, uh, I have a platform. For whatever reason, I speak and people listen. And I think that gives me a bit of a responsibility to continue speaking and keep doing what I'm doing. So I'm now, as of today, I've just launched something that I have refused to do for 12 years, and that is a, a funding platform to help me pay for my time and pay for the costs uh, in what I do. There's not a lot of cost in what I'm doing right now. Obviously, I can fund my own cigars and my own whiskey. That's fine. Uh, but when I go out and I do videos, I need crew, I need a team, I need all of that. So uh, for the first time ever, I have actually just created a, a crowdfunding platform. It's called Subscribestar. It's not Patreon because Patreon, as you would know, are terrible from a free speech point of view. They shut people down. Uh, and I'm just going to drop a link into the chat here, subscribestar.com forward slash uh, no, that's not what I wanted. Ha! That's not going to work at all. I'm going to go and get a proper link um, to my page, subscribestar.com, Topher Field. Let me actually get this right. Um, let me drop that in there. Okay, so subscribestar.com forward slash Topher Field. If you would like to support what I do, it's a pure if, it's entirely up to you. 
Um, do it or don't, I don't really mind that much. But for those of you that want me to be able to spend more time doing what I do, making more videos, producing more blog posts, creating more content, that is a way that you can help me to do that. In the past, I've only ever fundraised for specific projects uh, and delivering on those projects was what that money was used for. This is the first time I've ever put my hand up and said, hey, can you just uh, support me and give me the ability to spend more time on this? So if you can do that, please do. If you're struggling, don't. All right. If I'm, there's a lot of people hurting right now, please don't prioritize me over your own family or anything like that. Okay. This is just for people that want to, for people that can. Okay. With that out of the way, I have the great pleasure of enjoying tonight. And we have the great pleasure of enjoying tonight for our slow chat, the company of the incomparable federal Senator Malcolm Roberts. Malcolm, I am so thrilled to have you here and thank you so much for making the time. Oh, you're welcome, Topher. It's a pleasure to be here, mate. I always enjoy your company. Now, you're coming to us a lot too. Well, you're coming to us from sunny Queensland. Yes, I am. In in, in fact, quarantine in sunny Queensland. I'm uh, locked at home thanks to Anastasia Palaszczuk because there was one case in Canberra when we were down there at the end of last week. Oh, that 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 fatal one case. (laughs) I was discussing this actually. Uh, I was on the show with. discernible the other day and we were discussing which state has had the more ridiculous lockdown and I thought it was Canberra locking down over one case but then uh, Voice of Victoria Emily pointed out actually there uh, that South Australia locked down for no cases at one point in time uh, so South Australia are actually winning the, um, the the competition at the moment for the most absurd lockdown but being Is it a straight pizza case, box or straight pizza I, box I, or a football or something yeah i don't know they tested football? avocado or you know who knows i mean it's <laughs> it's it's all it's just beyond a joke isn't it well we should well, actually you, start... you actually how, how are you how are you countering being with um virus that is is only at night time you've got a curfew on down there this virus only no, occur in right. victoria at night that's right it's it is really nice uh that the virus is evolving and has now developed the ability to tell what time it is <laughs> Uh, I don't know why it doesn't come out during the day. Maybe it's a vampire, but it seems to only come out at night after 9 p.m. and it's gone by 5 in the morning. So that's good to know. If we just curfew during those hours, apparently we're all safe. And and it, it understands geography too because it won't go north of the Murray. No, 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 no that's right. west of the yeah. South Australian border. Well, it also understands sophistication. So you, you saw Obama had this birthday party with, what was it, 400 guests or something and then a bunch of servers. Uh, and the, the, the Oh, hang on, hang on. He did cut it down from 600. Oh, that's he right. He paid a really high price. <laughs> you know, he, he made a sacrifice just like the rest of us. Um, but the people defending that decision uh, said that it was a vaccinated and sophisticated audience. So clearly what we know now about the virus is it can tell how sophisticated you are as well. And it'll only infect unsophisticated people. Um, right. <laughs> Enough of that. Um, so you and I, we actually had our first kind of meeting in a, a really intense kind of a scenario where we spent three days, there were, what, were there six of us, I think, cramming into, it was a great little plane. I'm not denigrating the plane at all, but it was it was small, it was a little twin propeller thing. Uh, and we flew all over New South Wales, uh, South Australia, up into Queensland briefly. Um, how about you tell the story? Why in the world were we crammed into that plane? What were we doing? And and I must start by saying what a wonderful pilot we had. Um, Brooksy yes. was just phenomenal. Yes. Uh, he uh, knows fantastic. people all around. Yeah. Uh, well, what happened was back in uh, 2016, I entered the Senate as the last one elected in Queensland uh, in the double dissolution. And mm. we heard, we, Pauline and I get out a lot. Um, 
much more than most people for senators. And so we were in the bush and, and well, I was on my own this time and just listening to people. And we were in southern Queensland around the Boulogne Shire. Mm. And the Boulogne Council told us, which is around St. Georgetown, uh, told us that the town of Durham-Bandy right next to the New South Wales border was in dire straits. And we said, why? And they said, Murray Darling Basin Plan. Oh, okay. So we went down there and, and listened and sure enough, they're in trouble. So we recognised where the Murray-Darling Basin is. And so I mentioned it to Pauline and we organised a bus tour down the Murray, listening to people in Victoria, then across the border to New South Wales, crisscrossing the border, and then right yeah. down to the mouth of the Murray. Uh, and then, then we flew back to Queensland. And that gave us a good introduction. And then I spent a bit of time in northern New South Wales, southern Queensland, listening. And then I got knocked out with this dual citizenship stuff. And then I came back. And I recognise that we can't fix the Queensland mess without understanding the rest of the Murray-Darling Basin because, Topher, you know as well as I do, it's very much parochial attitudes that have destroyed the Murray-Darling Basin under, yeah. under a very corrupt um, plan that's been mm. driving, driving this since the Water Act of 2007. So what I did was organise the trip can, to go around the basin. The, the yeah. tragedy is the, the excuse for bringing in a federal plan was the parochialism. It was the states are all fighting with each other. They're not cooperating over water. We have to come in as a federal government to fix this. And they came in and can you believe it? Somehow a big government plan made things worse. I, I find <laughs> it's just, it's so contrary to expectations. Who would have known? Anyway, they've not ended the parochialism. They've just added another layer of it. Sorry, please continue. Well, well, they've done worse than that. We can get onto that. They, they've centralised yeah. things when they shouldn't have. Um, so anyway, we, we thought the best thing to do would be to take a, a trip right around the base and get a good feel for it, land overnight in, in a few places. Um, yeah. And we organised with we, we organized with other people to run the charter, but we worked out that Brooksy was the best um, and we paid him for his fuel and that's all, no profit. Brooksy did it, just gave us those three days. You were in the front seat, the prime seat with the camera the whole time, and that was yes, great. Yes, uh, it was, And I tell you what, I've done so many landings now from the front of one of those planes and watching him do it. And he's a great pilot. He's very methodical. He's very relaxed the whole time, but he's very methodical. Yeah. He's got his checklist. He's clearly working through a process. I reckon I could almost do it. And when I say almost, <laughs> I'd get to the point where I made contact with the ground and then it would go horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, but I could get all the way to that point, I reckon, pretty well, just having Oof. watched him. Brooksy's an amazing, uh, amazing person. You know, he, he's pretty strong, pretty tough. He's very intelligent and he's dedicated. Um, he's straight. He pushes things hard. And then when we, we, we saw something that we didn't agree with him on, um, we, we let it go and we, he, we landed in Mungandai, remember? And he yes. found out from the locals that Mungandai uh, really benefits from the uh, Cubby station. And all his thoughts of Cubby were really challenged. And I saw him. He didn't like yep. it, but yep. he changed his mind about Cubby. And he didn't yeah. change his mind about northern New South Wales because the evidence and, hasn't been and given. That's to him. a huge credit to him. Now he's a guy who was an yes. irrigator. He's a strong-minded guy. He knows a lot, but he was still willing to learn and still willing yep. to find out that he was wrong about something. That says a lot about someone. And and so we wanted to get a feel for the whole Murray Darling Basin. So that's what we did. And we I'll, I'll tell you the well, you know the route, but we'll share the route with your friends sure. um, through the air. And then we came back and we went to northern New South Wales and southern Queensland in detail on the ground, myself yeah. and a staffer. Yeah. Then we went down the, um, the, the Murray from uh, Cobram down to, uh, Ad down to near Adelaide and the mouth of the Murray. We learned a lot of things there. We investigated the southeast drains. And then the third trip we took on the ground was down the Murrumbidgee 
and up to, um, what's the name, Wentworth, up to Darling and ended up at Broken Hill. So we crisscrossed mm. the, the northern, central it's, and it's southern a, It's an basin. extensive trip. You've covered the ground. And, and far better than doing it with a Senate committee because Senate committee is tailored. It's sometimes, uh, what's the word, politicised. We, we were very independent. We could listen to everyone and we could spend as much time as we wanted. Pretty rushed trip because we didn't stop listening. It was, it was phenomenal. Yeah. So we've got a lot of uh, good, good research on that. But <clears throat> why do we do the plane? Not just to get an overview of the whole of the Murray-Darling Basin to understand the, the boundaries and the differences. But, you know, the very first thing that we saw when we took off from Albury stunned me because I was expecting the Murray to be uh, a windy river, but it was mm. more than a windy river. It winds back mm. on itself. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. as soon as we took off and I thought that's the best way of understanding that this river is extremely slow. It's not just mm-hmm. flat from the Western, from Victorian border to, to the mouth. It's flat the whole damn way. Yeah. And, and so that means the water flows are fairly low. It might be a big volume river in terms of width, a cross-section of the river, but the water flows are very slow. It's a very limited capacity that that, that river can handle. And so mm. that taught me something right there. And the land is very flat all the way from Albury right through to um, the mouth of the Murray. And that puts a phenomenal constraint on the whole thing. And it can only is- flow so fast. It's it, Correct. That's just the nature of gravity. Either the steeper it's going yep. down, the faster it can flow. If there's not a lot of not a lot of fall, you can only flow so fast. Correct. And and yep. uh, you know, having worked underground in, in coal mines, having started off as a coal miner at the face, uh, and having to understand as an engineer and as a mine manager and general manager, the the um, the fact that you ha- can only shove so much air down a tube down an underground roadway. Yeah. The same applies to a river. And the more yep. you shove, the more damage you do once you get above a certain limit. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what's happening to our beautiful river, mm-hmm. being destroyed mm-hmm. by the people who are pretending to save it. So there were many lessons we learned. We, we can, when you see it all in just a few days, you can see that the southern basin um, is completely different from the northern basin. The climate, yeah. the weather, the rainfall, so different. And the southerners don't understand that. And, and yet the southerners are getting screwed because – they're expected when the north can't produce any water at all, at all, because there's been no bloody rain, then mm. the south has to do the lot, and there's something yeah. wrong with that. Yeah, there's, 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 a real, there's a real issue with how the calculations are done, but I would go further than that and say there's a fundamental issue with the federal government having come in with a $13 billion budget, buying up an enormous amount of irrigation water. And you know, they, they say, they, you know, and the whole, the whole basin plan from 2007, it was all about making it a market mechanism. We're going to make it a market mechanism. So from the liberal point of view, they were, they were liberalizing it and making it a market mechanism. The Greens and Labor were convinced to come on board because they, the government were going to spend $13 billion on buying up water. But it's not a market when you have a massive player, a $13 billion player, who has no, um, no cost-to-benefit ratio to analyze. They don't have to look at what they're paying for the water and say, is it worth it? No, no, no. They've just got $13 billion to spend. That's yep. it. Just, and you know, they've got a target, buy as much as you can. That's not a market. No, no, of course, it's complete distortion, but it gets worse than that, as you know, because when you take out 28%, almost a third of the water, what happens to the price? It oh. takes off. And then then people are in poverty around Durambandi being smashed uh, because of that. And then they're willing to give up their water rights to save the keep going to eke out an existence. And then mm. they're on their slippery slope down. And then mm. you've got people, uh, then you've got uh, the water um, trading involved. 
And the water trading initially was just between two zones in New South Wales, for example. You could only transfer water or sell water to a maximum of two zones away from you. Now we're, we're trading water from one valley to the next. I mean, it's bloody yeah. ridiculous. And yeah. we're, trading, we're trading water down a restriction, uh, the Barmer Choke and other restrictions. It's complete insanity. And what's happening, Topher, is we're having a massive transfer of water, a massive transfer of property rights, a massive transfer of wealth to corporates along the along the basin who are well yeah. connected to people in the Liberal and National Parties. That's what's yeah. happening. And we've oh. got the South Australian dog uh, being wa- South Australian tail being wag- wagging the dog because 100%. they've got so much political cl- clout. The Liberals, the Labor Party, and the Greens are ganging together, and they mm. just force everything. And, and that's that's what's destroying it. All right, I want to come back to this comment from Biff uh, a little bit earlier. So, when is a politician an expert on anything? The thing that <laughs> I found absolutely remarkable about you, Malcolm, and and this is going to sound like I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but I've said this to multiple people in the intervening time. When you listen, you actually listen. Yeah. You are sitting there and you are taking notes and you are what what really what really struck me over the three days, I was so glad that it was a multi-day trip because there were things that you heard people say to you on day one, and then other things that people said to you on day three, and we were having discussions and, and you were connecting the dots from these disparate conversations from someone that you spoke to way down in the south to another person way up in the north. You had all your notes there and you were connecting the dots and trying to put together this entire sort of picture of, of what was really going on. So Biff, you're absolutely right. And he says, pardon my cynicism, I think it's right to be cynical of, of politicians. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> I. I think politicians give us a lot of reasons for cynicism. Uh, but I think I think Senator Roberts is actually an exception to that. And and that that for me spoke more of you than anything else, the genuine effort that you were putting in to actually understand. Uh, you, know, you weren't coming in there with, I know, you were coming in there with, tell me. Right. Like, and and that's the best way to be. Honestly, I speak so much better in the Senate after being out in the bush or out, out mm. in the suburbs because I come back and I actually know uh, and can relate to it much, much better. But more importantly, I actually took a phenomenal researcher, Richard, with me in our, in our yes. office team. He is yes. phenomenal. one of your staff is. And, he's excellent. Oh, my goodness. He pulls things together. He's got a phenomenal memory. Um, he synthesizes things really well. He, he, um, he can lay it out. And he does his research so quickly. Uh, you know, for me, I don't remember something just with once, but Richard mm-hmm. does. And he pulls it all together. And he and I bounce ideas off each other. And we do a, a, we work really well together. So that was just yeah. phenomenal, that whole trip. Unfortunately, the whole water s- situation, I mean, I've done a series of videos on that. I know One Nation have a number of policy proposals on that. It, that whole thing's gone on the back burner with COVID and everything else. I mean, not even I've got, I, I don't have time. I don't have oxygen to give to this to, to the issue right now when half of the Australian population's in lockdown and, and everything else. But it's my understanding, and I don't know how things are a bit further north towards your electorate, but it's my understanding that at least down here in the south, they've had a couple of good years agriculturally. Mm. They've actually had some better rainfall and, and a bit more of that. Is that happening further north as well? In places, it's pretty patchy in southern Queensland. Yeah, okay. okay. Uh, and in the north, it's very, excuse me, seasonal. I know yeah. it's a wet season up in the north, but that doesn't affect yeah. the Murray-Darling Basin, of course. But it's well outside yeah. the Murray-Darling Basin. But, uh, yeah, some areas in Queensland Apache. Okay. So but we, we just... will be – go on. No, no, no. We, we will be releasing a water policy or the Murray-Darling Basin policy uh, later this year, probably around late October, early November, depending upon the timing and what's happening. Um, 
but I can go into that if you want, just to give you a broad picture of it, or I can leave that alone. Whatever, whatever's look, up to you, I'm happy to do that. I've it we're not under time pressure tonight, and and if okay. people are interested, they'll stick around. If they're not interested, they'll go. I don't really mind either way because I'm interested. Uh, I've got a good cigar, a, a good whiskey, and a good person <laughs> to chat with. So I'm I'm good. I'm here to stay. Well, before before I I um, get onto the topics we're covering in this water policy for the Murray Darling Basin, I just want to say that the 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 thing that's missing in this country's governance, Topher, is an atrocious lack of data. Politicians don't use data. I mm. believe you must make decisions based on data. First of all, you get the data to understand the issue. You do identify the problem, and then you use the data to come up with some of the solutions, but also the options. And then once you work out the best options operationally, you then have to cost them to end up with cost-benefit analysis. How the hell can you do that? Um, if you don't have data and you don't do the, the cost-benefit analysis, you don't do your due diligence. But that's yeah. exactly the way we're running the country out of parliament. The Including most destructive, water, but everything else. Yes, yes, uh, everything, energy policy, property rights. Um, so it's got 15 components. The first thing we're saying is something we've said all along. Let's improve the measurement and reporting of the river flows, especially going out of the Murray, down at the barrages, into the, into the uh, ocean, but all through because they're making water allocations without any without data in many places that which, that destroys confidence in the plan and which, it brings up a lot of politicization in the corporate world if you were trying to run a company and your <laughs> shareholders found out that you weren't actually measuring where your money was flowing and you've got this big outlet where there's all this money just flowing out and you don't know how much is going you are going to lose your job instantly and you might even be up on charges of negligence and all sorts of other stuff but for the government, they can sit there and say, we're going to run this water system, but we don't know what's going on. We're not measuring stuff. It's absurd. Right. Right. And, and not only that, you notice in any sport, there's a scoreboard telling you how you're going and, yeah. and, uh, and, and identifying where your weaknesses are relative to your opponents. There's no progress reporting. It's all just pulled out of their asses and flipped out there, given a headline and away they go. And that's, yeah. that's just so disrespectful. But the real problem is, it, is that it happens with both sides of politics. Yeah. And they both do this, and the bureaucrats let them get away with it. We, Pauline, is very, very good at holding people accountable, and so do mm -hmm. I because I'm, I'm a bit of a terrier. So that's <laughs> what we do. But there's only two of us. The rest want to play the game of, um, of headline hunting and all the rest of it. And so they look after their vested interests. They look after their mates, their corporate donors, their headlines they're looking to get, talking about elections, uh, making decisions based on opinion, not the hard data. And, of course, mm -hmm. when you don't have that hard data, you can't measure progress. So is this Murray-Darling Basin good, planned good or bad or what? Who knows? And, and, and you're paying for that as a taxpayer. The only metric we have is the price that farmers are having to pay to get their water. We do at least have that metric. And that metric is telling us that something is badly, badly wrong with the current Correct. Product. Because they cannot afford to, you know, you've got irrigators, you've got, you've got um, dairies that they're paying more for the water or so much for the water that they are losing money on every litre of milk they produce. That's, mm -hmm. That tells you something's gone horribly wrong with the plan. They're not measuring right. the water, so therefore we have to measure it off the money, and the money says there's a problem. I can agree with Biff, Vector Abbott mm. there. Yeah, she, she has, and she's bloody good to work with. She, uh, if she doesn't like what I think or say at times, she'll challenge me on it, and yep. if I've got the facts to back it up, she'll say, oh, I'm wrong. Okay, Malcolm, we'll go with what you're doing. She's yep. got the guts because, to me, the most important thing of leadership, I learned this a long time ago in, in uh, mm. Managing Minds where you had to deal with lots of complex variables and killing people if, if you got it wrong, um, is strength mm. of character. You know, the ability to say, Topher, 
I don't understand this. Can you please explain it to me? Politicians are afraid to do that because they're afraid people think that they, they look like they're weak. They're not. Yeah. If you ask a question like that, the yeah. second uh, second thing is, um, Topher, I just made a mistake. I'm sorry, mate. Topher, I promise to get... you heard that from a politician. Yeah. It, it Pauline and I do it if we make a mistake. Um, yeah. Topher, can you give me a hand with this, please, mate? Mm. You mean you don't know it all? No, I don't. And and if if I pretend I know everything, wow, that was a good one. Yeah. If, if I pretend I know everything, no one's going to come to me with the solutions. Um, yeah. So what do you think? Yeah. What's your data? How can you add to this? You know, the biggest buzz I get in work, and, and even now with our, with our Senate team, I can do things pretty well. I'm pretty bright, pretty energetic, but yeah. I love to see someone else take on something new and step yeah. aside for, say, a 23-year-old and give him or her a chance to do that job. And then yeah. they, they'd learn that skill. And I'm better off because of it, because we've got a new approach to doing that. But yeah. it's so invigorating for me, so satisfying to see someone do something new and be very, very happy and satisfied about it. You know, yeah. that is just beautiful because you're setting people free. I want to jump back to Colin's comment here. Uh, our country has become a COVID tyranny. Let's not focus so much on water distribution in the Murray-Darling uh, Basin. <laughs> I agree with both of those, and that's why I haven't been focusing much on that. If you look at my page since all the COVID stuff started, there's not been a lot of water content, but I'm speaking with someone who shares my passion and my concern about what's happening. It's a rare opportunity, so I'm going to make the most of it. We will, however, because... Um, Malcolm, you you do talk a lot about what's happening in terms of our freedoms, in terms of COVID, in terms of all that sort of stuff. Um, so before we get there, with my, with apologies to Colin, I want to talk about one more water thing, which you've now done more work on than I had. And I, 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 this is an area that I genuinely, as we were just talking about, saying to people, hey, can you educate me? Can you help me? Can you help me to understand a bit more about the Bradfield scheme? I understand in concept what it was, um, but... You've now worked on, or, or One Nation, I believe, have worked on a fairly specific proposal around how it can actually work. So can you give us a rundown? What is it? What's it supposed to do? And what's your proposal or what your party's proposal about how it might work? So the original scheme was developed by an outstanding engineer who, who got surveyors involved. He, he did it all properly, planned it properly. It was to take the water that flows, that, that is falling in rain on the, um, the, the hinterland behind Cairns, flows west and then eventually flows through to Burdekin and then into the east coast. Hmm. To ha have dams at strategic locations and then take that water and put it into the, uh, what's the basin? The Thompson Basin, um, right. which goes past Longreach. And then to send okay. the water down through the Thompson River and the other tribute, uh, what is it, distributaries, whatever they're called. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me, that, that beer always causes carbon dioxide with me. Oh, that, that terrible carbon dioxide. Anyway. Oh, um, yeah, no, that, that CO2. <laughs> oh, goodness, that stuff will kill you. <laughs> um, and that flows ultimately into Lake Eyre. Now, yep. there are very various reasons as to why that's good. Um, we looked at other possibilities too, and we're in the middle of actually refining uh, the, the proposal. Gee, you're pretty good at that. Um, and anyway, uh, there's another proposal uh, or an idea, it's not a proposal, an idea to send the water into the Flinders. Now, I didn't know this, but the Flinders, uh, which flows west and then north into the Gulf, is actually a yeah. uh, Queensland's fourth highest volume river. Yeah, and right. it's very, very regular every year. Yeah. And so, uh, but we worked out, when we, we spent a week in that Flinders Basin uh, just recently, a couple of months ago. We worked out that's not going to work. So, um, 
and they've, they've, they've already got good irrigation schemes proposed there. The, the people are getting off their ass. They've got some wonderful people yeah, in local government yeah. and there are people from New South Wales coming up so pissed off with the Murray-Darling Basin that they're wanting to move to Queensland up in the Gulf. Yeah. So anyway, that that's on its, uh, that can continue on its own, providing the state government allocates water licences. So it won't go into the Flinders, uh, so it could still go into Longreach. There's another alternative where we could send the water, for example, down to the Warrigo just north of Charleville and let it flow into the Murray-Darling Basin. Yeah. But I wouldn't be in favour of that because the Murray-Darling Basin has to be sorted out first. They're already wrecking that water. Why the hell should we give them more water to wreck and to, and to, and to corrupt? Um, let me, and there are let other, me add others. something in at that point, if I, if I may. I think that the mismanagement of the Murray-Darling Basin has been so bad that they're actually going to find themselves in a position in about 10 years where they're going to have no choice but to find a way to add more water. If you look at how over-allocated they already are in because of the, the federal government taking one-third of the water, right? They're over-allocated because they artificially took a bunch of the water away that was previously available to farmers. And the fact that we've got all of these new um, olive plantations going in uh, towards the South Australian Almonds. border. Uh, sorry, almonds is what I meant, is, is what I meant to say. Yep. Uh, and the fact that their water consumption grows massively as they mature Huge. towards actually yielding a crop. There is far too much demand now. And there is all of this infrastructure, not just the the, the actual um, farm infrastructure itself, but then, you know, whether it's your rice um, processing or, or wheat processing or various other processing infrastructure that's around the place. There are billions and billions of dollars in infrastructure around there that is falling into disuse because the farmers don't have the water to produce the goods that are supposed to go through that infrastructure in the first place. Yep. That problem is going to become absolutely massive and is becoming bigger and bigger with each passing year, except that they've had some rain. So there's we've come out of the drought that we were in, but there will be another drought. And when that happens, the crunch is going to be phenomenal and i think they're going to be under a huge amount of pressure regardless of whether they've sorted out the Murray-Darling basin to find a way to put more water into the basin so that will well, be an interesting moment this is this is deliberate tofer it's not uh stupidity or or accident it is quite deliberate the bureaucrats in the middle are caught out in it they think okay. they're playing the right game but we can come back and talk about what's happening on the bigger picture to our country in in, in that that area and on, on that, Jason has said, can we talk about the UN? And we're definitely planning to do that later. And I think that's what you're foreshadowing there. Mark. I won't. I am. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to get there, Topher. Yeah, um, we'll get there tonight. No problem. So the Mar so the Bradfield scheme, what, we've, what we're also doing is um, we're, we're, we still haven't finalised that, but the general concept is to have a number of dams up in the northern northern part of Australia on the, on the Burdigan and some of its tributaries, mm -hmm. and then to use the water to send to other places that need it for irrigation, yep. to yep. use the water for hydro, have actually have a true hydro, not this pump storage that mm. consumes more electricity than it generates, but to have mm. a proper hydro scheme up there. Um, yep. And, yeah, and, and that's basically it. That's still alive uh, and alive and well with us. We, we're pushing that. We think it's very, very important for the long-term security. But we also realise that um, – the Liberal Party, the National Party and the Labor Party don't want to build dams. They're terrified of the Greens, terrified of the UN. They don't want to build dams. Dams are a way of storing water because water is like liquid gold. In the north, it's it's not there in, in, in the dry season. Mm -hmm. In the south, um, it's not there when you want it either. And so yeah. what you're doing is, is actually just moving. Australia has the world's most variable climate. You can mm -hmm. have, as a farmer, you can have two flood years. Then you might have 
a drought, then uh, a very dry year. Then you might have another flood year. Then you might have eight years of drought or 12 years of drought. How can yeah. you manage like that? You yeah. can't. So just, just by having proper storages, we can give farmers much more reliability and still look after the environment. Because one thing's yeah. for sure, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority is destroying the environment in the lower lakes, destroying it yeah. along the Murray, destroying yeah. it in the northern basin. Everywhere it touches, it goes to shit. Yeah. Well, surprise, surprise. Everywhere a big government bureaucracy with a massive <laughs> budget and a whole bunch of uh, middle, mid-level bureaucrats, uh, everything they touch, uh, yes, absolutely goes to shit. All right. I don't want to dwell too much longer on that. I, I do have a series of videos. You'll find them on my Facebook page or you find them on my YouTube channel. If you go back a little bit, uh, four videos that are the most recent series that I did that details what's wrong in my view with the current Murray-Darling Basin, Murray-Darling Basin Authority. Uh, Malcolm, as you said, there's a policy coming out uh, in a couple of months from One Nation that'll hopefully chart a way forward uh, through that. So th this is all very much live and real. However, the thing that is consuming most people's minds right now is the reality that half of Australia's population, what, what supposedly the young and free country, uh, although we're not young anymore, are we? We're one. We're one and free. That's right. Sorry to be politically incorrect. <laughs> we're in this there, together, everybody. mate. We're in this together. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. We're all in this together. Um, <laughs> you with your virus and the nighttime virus and, and people in Queensland with a, with a vampire prim, uh, premier. Well, we're all in this together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who had to fly to Japan to seal the deal on an Olympics that no one else wanted. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, so so let's let's move on to COVID and, and all of what's going on here. At a federal level, I, I think, you know, I, I was one of those people dumb enough to be hopeful that Scott Morrison might have had the spine to be a little bit different and to not just cave and collapse uh, with all the nonsense that's been going on. But in the last couple of months or in the last year or so, what we have learned as Australian citizens is that being an Australian citizen is meaningless, that one of the most fundamental rights of citizenship is that you can get home. You've got that piece of paper that says, yeah. I belong here and I can come back here if something happens and I go, you know what, I need to get home. That trust has been broken and that's only one out of countless things. At a federal level, what's going on? Why aren't we seeing any le meaningful leadership at all? <clears throat> Scott Morrison is a marketing man. And uh, before the last federal election in, what was it, October 2019 or November 2019? Oh, hang on, yep. hang on. It was May, May, May 2019. That's right. Um, I was on the ground a lot in, in eastern, eastern Queensland. And I said to James Ashby, who's been in politics for quite a while, very astute, a, a really gifted individual. He, he really is sharp and across many, many fields. Whatever he touches, he does really well. Yep. Anyway, I said to James, mate, I'm just a baby in politics. I, I really am. Um, but, mate, Morrison is going to win this election. He'll either have a hung parliament or it'll be a narrow liberal national victory. And James said, no, you're talking nonsense, Malcolm. That's Shorten's going to walk it in, right? <laughs> so you saw what happened. Yeah. Um, because I was listening to people in, in, in the, on the ground in Queensland, and we did a lot of work in the two years prior to that, three years prior to that, setting up, um, trying to set Queensland up for, the, for a good future. And the Liberal Nationals saw what we were doing and they copied that. Well, well, that's fine. Mm. Um, and Adani got up because of that, which is wonderful. Mm. Um, but I said to, to James, while I'm on this winning streak of one, uh, beating you on, on one issue, let me, <laughs> let me give you another forecast. I said to him that Morrison will be on the ropes within six months. Yeah, wow. And he said, okay. He didn't, he didn't take me on over that. And, <laughs> and, and then... Because Morrison is fundamentally a marketing person. He's not a, num mm. he's not a policy person. If you look mm. at his statements he makes, he jumps into an issue before getting the facts. Yeah. And he does that by putting his 
finger in the air and sensing which way the wind What's goes. He's a wind vane. Yeah, yeah. Correct. Um, and he's just done that. He's thrown George Christensen under the bus before getting the facts. George is spot on with what he said. But yep. instead of standing up for George, he threw him under the bus. Um, and he's fundamentally flawed and wrong in that. So mm. Morrison, if you remember, during the bushfires, he was on the ropes. Yep, yep. And and he was not going to recover because because people can see it. And and there've been a lot of liberals telling us that they're disgusted with with Morrison. Not only disappointed, but disgusted. And so <clears throat> he uh, then had the the COVID uh, the arrival of COVID in Australia, and every sitting member, every sitting premier, every and the prime minister, every incumbent took off in the polls. Mm. Very mm. very fortunate because what happens COVID mm. when. Uh, uh, Topher, when you're when you're attacked by something external beyond the country's control, whether it's a war or whatever, people yep. rally around the incumbent. And the in- yep. Palaszczuk was another one. Palaszczuk yep. was dead and gone. Yep. If the election had been February last year, she would have been out yep. on her on her neck, yep. on a landslide. Yep. Instead, the Labor Party machine dished up lots and lots of fear, 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 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and said Anastasia's protecting you, and it's yep. crap. She's actually hurting us, but people were fooled and she got an increase in, in, in her vote when she should have been tossed out. So what you've got now is, um, and I believe that Morrison set up the, the National Cabinet. I can't prove this, of course. It's just my opinion. But looking at him and what he did was setting up the National Cabinet, I said to Pauline, this is about one thing. If we have a successful COVID management plan and an execution, then he will take the credit. If it fails, he'll blame the premiers. But what's Correct. happened is it's gone longer than he thought. And now the Labor premiers, and it is exclusively the Labor premiers, that's mm. half the premiers, are really causing him to jump through the hoops. Yeah. And they're making a mess of things for political purposes to undermine him. And yep. he cannot cope because he's now yep. stuck in that bucket. And so well, what we've got is, is a number of premiers, especially Labor premiers. Mm. Berejiklian has not been so bad at this, but the other Labor premiers have been atrocious and 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 um, they have spread fear and fear and fear. And now they're using that. Dan Andrews is the worst. They're mm-hmm. using that to control people. This yeah. is no longer an exercise in managing a virus because they've not mm. managed the virus. I'm happy to talk about that. This is atrocious mm. management of the virus. And so what we've seen now is a, an exercise in controlling people and conditioning people. And this bloody thing, the mask, mm. uh, you know, that's just a reminder in everyone's faces every day when you're walking through Brisbane that there's something to be afraid of, Kurt Topher. Yeah. And politicians yeah. who lack real sense and lack real character, they use fear and they whip up fear, and that's what they're doing. That's all it is. I've, I've taken to saying recently, and I've, I've certainly stirred up a bit of a hornet's nest with some people, but I believe I'm absolutely right, that we are now engaging in child abuse that we are all locked in an abusive relationship with our government, and especially here in Victoria, where they've just closed down the parks again. Now, think about it. A park is outdoors. There is no record of outdoor transmission occurring in Australia. It's involving children. There are very few instances of children contracting COVID worldwide. Even the Delta variant, which, yes, they appear to be maybe a little bit more susceptible to, is still such a small minority. Uh, And it's contact transmission, where someone's left something on a surface and another person touches that surface. Supposedly, all three of these things, all of which are unlikely, we have to shut down the parks because that's maybe happened one time, they think possibly, but probably not, right? And then all of a sudden, we're, we're closing down all the parks. And I asked the question the other day on, my, on my, my TOFA page, and I put this to somebody else recently, and they did not appreciate it. If I pulled my children out of school, cut them off from their friends, 
cut them off from their extended family, pulled them out of all sports and physical activity and locked them in their house 22 hours a day, would I be a hero or would I be a child abuser? Right? And I, abuser. I think the answer is yep. pretty obvious. I'd be a child abuser. Yep. Imagine, you know, we talk about psychological abuse. We talk about emotional abuse. People can abuse their spouses simply by controlling the money in the family. Mm -hmm. Like these are all things that we know and we understand. Now we have a premier, we have a government at all levels, but I'm in Victoria and Daniel Andrews is, in my opinion, the worst. Uh, it's a pretty low bar. You know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty <laughs> poor competition to be winning. It's not, not something you want to be winning, but he's winning that competition. Um, and it is nothing but governmental abuse. And, and now with the, the park lockdowns, it is nothing but child abuse. And I'm very, mm -hmm. very concerned that there are so many people championing this and happy to see this psychologically. What, we need to rename Stockholm Syndrome. And call it Melbourne syndrome because we've we've gone full Stockholm syndrome on this. Is that the same dynamic that you're talking about? The popularity of the incumbent is that still playing out even now? Well, that that's just a matter of people rallying around the, the leader at the time, mm. um, and it doesn't matter who it really is unless they're grossly incompetent. Well, well, these people are grossly incompetent, but the the difference is that that Palaszczuk has an incompetent um, opposition to deal with, yeah. so she's oh, lucky. Same in and and the labor oh terrible, but the Labor Party uh, in Queensland is a machine. There's no lie it won't yeah. tell. There's no amount of money it won't spend. It's it's yeah. rolling in cash, um, and there's no distortion it won't make. And so yeah. they're very very clever at winning elections, just like the South Australian uh, Labor Party used to be. But yeah. um, you know, if if it's very important, I think Tofa to understand what security is. Security is not seeing a soldier on the street. Security is not yeah. seeing a, a policeman beating up a granny in a park in Melbourne. Security is not yeah. about locking up kids. Security is not about, um, uh, you know, stopping protesters, going door to door to find out whether or not you were in a protest last week. Um, this insane, is bullshit. It? This is bullshit. It, it's just an become? extension of this. Who have we security, become? Security comes from a breadwinner job. Yep. Security comes, number two, from having a, a house that you can mm. call your own or you're paying mm. off, or if you mm. want to rent, so be it, but you, you're yep. secure in your house. Number three, security is about having loving family around you to support community. you. Yeah. And number four is community, whether that yeah. be work community, a social community, a football community, whatever, um, a sporting community. And that's the strength of community. Every one of those is being smashed by this bullshit, everyone. Now, I'm not saying I need to be very, very careful uh, and quick to uh, say that COVID is a threat, mm. and, and we can talk more about that, mm. but it's it's not being managed well. So my main concerns are health, freedom, yep. and government accountability. Yep. All are being destroyed by yep. this bullshit, all of them, um, right. and, and that's what we need to sort out. I, I want to echo what you just said. It's, it's, I, I get a little bit annoyed by these people that insist that there is nothing when you look at the 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 all-cause mortality data in countries, there was clearly a wave of something. We can yep. argue about what it is and how bad it is and all the rest of it. There's something. There's, there's, there is, at a minimum, a really bad flu going around, at a minimum. Okay, And we can see that in the all-cause mortality data. We can also see from the data that it's extremely disproportionate in its risk to different um, age yes. groups and to different comorbidity groups. And that, again, you're talking about the data. We've got to do everything based on data. That gave us a very clear pathway forward. And I, I released a video in March 2020 in which I volunteered to be infected with the coronavirus. Now, at that point in time, we didn't know whether any vaccines were ever going to be invented. It had never been achieved before. Uh, and so at that point in time, looking at the evidence and looking at the demographic data around who was vulnerable and who was not, I 
ran the numbers. And I realized that if we have to get to, let's say, 70% of people have to have had the coronavirus before herd immunity is achieved, before it cannot really replicate itself enough to really rip its way through the community anymore. If we allow a random sample of Victorians, 70% of all Victorians, but as a random sample to contract it at the rates that we were seeing, the fatality rates we were seeing out of Sweden, there would have been in the tens of thousands of deaths, right? Based on that data, almost exclusively elderly people already in nursing homes, already in palliative care with other comorbidities. But nevertheless, that's a lot of a, a lot of deaths. Yep. If we had the same number of people, 70%, but they were all younger, they were all like me, the number of deaths would have been around about 27. And I was willing, and I, I released a video in March, and I, I said it and I meant it. I'll, I'll volunteer. I'm not, I'm, I'm not volunteering for the, the, um, the vaccine, but I'll volunteer for the virus. You give me that virus, I'll quarantine until I'm completely healthy again, and I will have done my part in helping the community to develop that, that protection. We could, have achieved, we could have achieved herd immunity within months if we'd yes. only actually paid attention to the data. Correct. What do you think we can do from where we are? We, we, what's, what's been done has been done. Where do we go from here? The first thing we can do is to really call out all the, all the, the politicians for the abuse that they have uh, inflicted on our country. Mm -hmm. um, when back in March, when the March 2020, when the virus arrived in this country, Topher, um, we said, and I said in Parliament, that we're facing what seems to be an unknown threat. Looking at tens of thousands of people dying in Italy, France, Spain, China, we've got to do something as strong. Okay, yeah. so we said it's like a time of war. It's not a war, but no. it's like a time of war. You've got an external threat. So we just said to the government, there it is. We'll give you a blank check. Go for it. But I said on, on Monday, March 23rd, yep. 2020, and I said it again on the next single day session of Parliament, Wednesday the 8th of April 2020, I said, mm -hmm. Here's the money. We want the data. We want mm. you to get the data. Mm. We want you then to develop a proper plan. And mm. then we will come and hold you accountable. Yep. The data has still not been put out there. And I'll talk about the data in a minute. Yep. Because uh, you, you raised a very good point. And the second thing is we still don't have a plan. And if you, no. if you want evidence of that, the premiers are pointing in every which way. They don't know what the hell they're doing. We've got there one person no you get locked in. It's complete no rubbish. Yeah. Well, there's no strategy for even managing it, let alone true. an exit, mate. Yeah, true, um, true. That's clear because of the and, – and what they're doing is they're resorting to the old tricks of blaming someone else. Hmm. So with the data um, in March of this year, 2021, in Senate estimates, I asked the chief medical officer and the secretary for the Department of Health, the head of the health department federally, for the data that characterises the virus. Yep. How easily is it transmitted? Mm -hmm. And what is the severity of this virus? Mm -hmm. And I would wanted it to be in a form that was partly absolute, but also relative to past strong flus, uh, SARS, etc. Yep. Yep. We got that back. And uh, the transmissibility is high, so it's highly mm -hmm. contagious. We get mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. like some flus. Yep. And like the common cold, which is also common, a coronavirus. I was going to say that, the common cold, absolutely. And then the severity. Now, here's the shock. The severity mm. goes from low to moderate, mm. not severe, not mm. high. Mm. It's lower than some past flus we've had. Yeah. It's lower than, than, than many past respiratory diseases. It's way lower and less, trans, less contagious than Spanish flu. 
Yes. So there we have it. But yes. you raised a very, very important point. If you look at the people that die, they're generally elderly and comorbidity and obese, mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. whose immune systems are compromised. That mm -hmm. tells you then you don't have a plan for the whole population. You have a plan for segments of the population. Correct. Sorry, you have Correct. a plan for the whole population, but it's segmented plan. Yeah. It's stratified. Now, in March, we'd already, um, we've got a population of about 25 million. Taiwan yep. has a population of 24. It's almost the yep. same. They're, they're on a tiny island. They're crowded onto mm -hmm. a tiny island mm -hmm. close to China with many mm -hmm. more interactions with the Chinese. So they, they got yep. the virus earlier than we did. Now, up until they had a, a significant breach in quarantine, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, and, and I mentioned this back in those days, back in March last year, I said, look at Taiwan. They've already done a phenomenal job, and they are doing a phenomenal job. Okay, mm. so we can credit that with their experience with SARS. So what? They're doing a bloody good job. Go and find mm. out what they're doing. Nothing. Mm. The World Health Organization put Taiwan in the shadow. They don't want yeah. to know. But they wouldn't up even until acknowledge recently, their existence. Yeah, up until recently, despite the earlier uh, and earlier ingress of the virus and the uh, and the uh, higher contagious uh well closer densely populated densely population densely populated population we had in taiwan at a time when we had 900 deaths mm. despite lockdowns mm. despite destroying our economy taiwan had seven deaths not 700 mm. seven mm. and they were recognized as being by far the best in the world now taiwan did that not by locking down everyone but by testing, tracing, and quarantining the sick and the vulnerable. Mm. That's a legitimate strategy, and that has worked. Wherever it's been applied properly, it's worked. Um, so, so our way out is, first of all, to have the data and to have a plan based on the data. We saw the mm. Doherty modelling uh, results that was from recent. New Zealand. No, the, yeah. this was last year, early in okay, about so April. Okay, so a previous one. Yep. Yeah, April, May. This was the Doherty yep. Centre modelling, which was based, we understand, from the Imperial College in London, which has a terrible record. So, yeah. um, Neil, Niall and, Ferguson should not have oh, his job. Should not have his job. Oh. So anyway, we saw the modelling, and we saw the modelling for New Zealand. And looking at it from your way, there was a huge uptick. Get control of it, suppress it. And then... Yep. then Yeah. Okay. So it's doing that. In other words, it'd be several more uh, yep. outbreaks. Yep. What Australia was shown was that bit. Yep. That's it. Yep. False. That's a yep. lie. Yep. Now, I haven't got much confidence in the Doherty Institute, and I've got a m number no. of reasons for that. But what we understand is that Taiwan, what they did, they didn't lock down the population, they didn't mm. shut down their economy. Their economy didn't miss a beat. And it didn't miss a beat despite their main uh, customers in China. Um, North America and Europe mm. locking up. They Being still mm. they had a, they had a minor decrease of about 0.6 of percent in their GDP. Tiny. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And and yet they had so few deaths. Now they had a a, a big outbreak recently with a big breach in quarantine, but they got onto it straight away. Mm. They lost about 600 lives, which is still mm. way below us. But in one outbreak, because they're so densely populated, but they they quickly back to back to a low low mortality rate again. But Very let me ask you this: How do we how do we come back from all of the fear campaign around zero cases? Because we're seeing from around the world, where you can look at um, Gibraltar, look at Israel. Uh, look at uh, Iceland, look at other places that have very high adult vaccination rates. They are still having outbreaks on a per capita basis way bigger than anything we've had here in Australia. Gibraltar is credited with a ninety nine percent plus adult vaccination rate. 
they just recently have had an outbreak with, I think it was 229 cases in it. Now, that's slightly old data now. I haven't looked it up in the last week. If you extrapolate for population, they've only got about 34,000 population. That's over 150,000 cases here in Australia with a 99% plus fully vaccinated rate in their adult population. Given how terrified the Australian public is of cases, remember, that's been the metric now for so long. It's all about cases. Even if every single adult were vaccinated, which would require an act of tyranny that, unlike anything this continent has ever seen, but even if that were to happen, we are still going to see outbreaks bigger than even what we're in right now. So how do they walk that back? How do we get back to the point where it's even possible to stay open? Well, Gladys Berejiklian, to a credit today and yesterday, I think, said that we have to get to the point where uh, we treat COVID, um, we live with COVID and we manage it accordingly. Now, that's that's what Taiwan's done and they're doing it brilliantly with far fewer yep. deaths than we had. Now, yep. I, I want to say something before I, I, I launch onto something else. First of all, I believe very strongly and I strongly support mm. the use of tested proven drugs and medicines that are proven to be safe, proven to be effective, and preferably affordable. Don't say their names or I'll get censored, but no, I think we all know what you're talking about. No, no, you, you, not at the moment. I'm talking very generally. I haven't got any, okay. any yep. particular medicine yep. in mind at yep. all. Okay. Yep. I, I, I believe very strongly in those, those three things. Tested thoroughly, properly tested, mm -hmm. proven safe, proven mm -hmm. uh, effective, and proven affordable. I do not believe in untested drugs. Mm -hmm. I do not believe, I'm very strongly opposed to the use of untested drugs forced on people at the threat of losing their livelihood. That is mm -hmm. immoral, it's dishonest, mm -hmm. it's unethical. That mm -hmm. is inhuman. Uh, you know, for you to live as, as, a, as an organism, you need food. Yep. Yep. To live as a, as a sensible, as a, as a civilised human being, you need shelter. Mm -hmm. They're trying to deny those fundamental things. President Macron, a known globalist, recently said we're going to bring in digital prisons. That's my word for digital passports because yeah. they're prisons, Topher, because they exclude you from certain services. They exclude you from basic rights. Mm -hmm. That's a prison. It's not a passport. Mm -hmm. So Macron, with his digital prison, wanted mm -hmm. to stop, wanted to make sure that you had to have a vaccine before you went to the supermarket. This is horrific. This is this absolutely is, horrific. This is a serious proposal being made in a country that, because of their history, should know better. Yes. And, 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 and he's being taken seriously as well. And we've had people in this country do things almost as bad. Sorry, mm. suggest things almost as bad. Yeah. That's how far we've descended, and it's happened in yeah. an eye blink. And, in, and, in, and, in a year and a half. A year and a well, half. Well, yes, but it's being taken. ramped up in the, in the last six months. Oh, yeah. This, yeah, definitely. This is when it's really coming. And then we've got a prime minister who says, no, I won't force vaccinations. Then he comes out, and by the way, the Constitution says he can't. Yes. The federal government cannot. Yes. Um, I, I saw legal advice on that. It's been vindicated. I got good legal advice. It's been vindicated by David Flint, who's an expert on the Constitution as well. Yep. So, but the states can. So yes. what Morrison did is the same thing John Howard did when he stole farmers' property rights. I, he, I will he say. through the states. The states can't do it morally, but thank you. Under their under their little set of rules, the sandbox that they get to play in, they they have given themselves permission to do it. It's never moral. 
it's never right, but they can claim that it's legal. And because they define what is legal, unfortunately, uh, they're, they're right. But there, there is no moral scenario in which any anyone, forget government, there is no moral scenario in which I, in any guise, even if I was the prime minister or the premier, can turn around to you, Malcolm Roberts, and say, you must put this thing into your body. That, that, from a moral standpoint, there is no scenario under which that is moral. Everything that goes into my body is comes in with my consent. Yeah, that's it. Here, yeah. then, you know, uh, it's my body; it's my choice. Yeah. that that stands very true for putting toxins into my body. I'm not going to do yeah. it. Yeah. I've never that's put it. a cigarette between my lips. Now you can enjoy your cigar; I get that. <laughs> but that's but my I've choice. never done it. No, yeah. that's because I'm too short as it is. See, they tell me smoking stunts of growth. Actually, actually, but, funny piece of trivia: I've never had a cigarette either, and I'm not interested. I don't care. Yeah, cigars so, and cigarettes are very different things. So what I was getting to was that these vaccines are provisionally approved. They're not yeah. approved. They're provisionally approved. And I asked the head of the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Senate Estimates, you get provisional approval mm. for something that is a treatment where there's no alternative. And what we know is that they have not done testing on the reproduction system of the mm -hmm. females. Mm -hmm. They can do that through many generations very quickly using rats, which have very mm -hmm. short lifespan, very uh, rapid maturity. Mm -hmm. um, they do not have, they've not done the testing on what is transmitted through to the next generation. They do not have long-term studies on rats or humans. Um, mm -hmm. They, we're now seeing that the Pfizer vaccine, the efficacy is plummeting. Israel is so concerned mm -hmm. they're now talking about a third boost, third booster mm -hmm. jab. Pfizer They've already started rolling it out in certain in certain correct. sections of the population. Yeah. Pfizer is now applying to the Food and Drug Administration in America to have a third booster. Mm -hmm. I have never seen, never seen the wealth transfer from taxpayers like you and me and the people watching this mm -hmm. to massive, monstrous, inhuman companies like Big Pharma. Never seen it before. It's a massive transfer of wealth from our taxpayer money to them. Yeah. And what's more, they don't have to. They don't have to wear the indemn. They, they they don't have to wear the responsibility. The government yep. will indemnify them. Yep. And they haven't been tested. The TGA, from what I'm told, has approved these these vaccines based upon what the manufacturers have told them, and the manufacturers have admitted that the actual performance may differ because they haven't done their testing fully. This also is insane. Also keep in mind, these are the very same companies that have had to pay out multi, multiple billions of dollars in settlements for people injured by their products where they haven't managed to get immunity and for lying, for actually defrauding consumers and for lying to regulators in the past. These, all of these companies, I think we've maybe one exception, every other one has actually engaged in criminal activity deceiving people about their products. Correct. And I've mentioned that in Senate estimates and, yeah. and, um, and the TGA head uh, said something like, uh, oh, yeah, but that was only for marketing. Hang on a minute. They falsely marketed. That's integrity issue. Correct. And it's still illegal. I'm sorry. Yes. That, that doesn't make it any any better at all. So there's a they, lot they of- They wrongly marketed their, their products. They, they blew up the, uh, exaggerated the benefits and downplayed the, the, the problems and the side effects. We yep. also know, um, this is something I learned a, few, a couple of weeks ago, might have been last week, Time moves so quickly that yeah. Pfizer, the Wall Street Journal, which which is a very, very highly regarded and respected paper, uh, if the Wall Street Journal says it, you can usually bank on it. The Wall Street Journal reported that Pfizer's income for the last quarter was $18.9 billion. 
Pfizer made, they estimated, based upon pretty sound knowledge of their margins, mm. $4 billion profit in three months. Mm. They also know that, that the uh, European, I can't remember the European agency, um, but it's European Health Agency, has found that the Pfizer drug causes myocarditis in the heart. Mm -hmm. Just in 2019 or 2020, the TGA in this country approved a drug that Pfizer makes for treating myocarditis. So, the, so we're paying, the taxpayers are paying Pfizer to make some people sick, and then Pfizer's making a profit on that and making a profit on getting them well again. We also know that AstraZeneca um, is now known to have to cause blood clots in some people. Hmm. We don't know the full extent of that, but Pfizer released a drug for treating blood clotting just 18 months ago in this hmm. country and approved hmm. by the TGA. So they're making money out of that as well. Yeah, they sell you the disease and then they sell you the cure. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is not, this is fundamentally, it's right out there. It's in, it's yeah. in public. And yeah. then we also know that Pfizer has admitted that the efficacy of its drugs plummets dramatically after a couple of months. In other words, we've got to shovel well, more money at them. Well, that's right. Oh. What they're doing here, it's, it's, it's really beautiful. Let me give you a, a crappy analogy, but it, it works. You know how gyms, all your local sort of gymnasium, you know, work out, go and work out and go and do classes, might have you, local gyms. They all now are almost all run on a subscription model. That's mm -hmm. because if it, it was run on a fee for service, you show up, you pay money to go and do your workout. Uh, they, they would go broke because let's be honest, we sign up, we start paying the subscription, we go a few times and then slowly we go less and less and less. And then if you're like me, a couple of years ago, I paid for a gym for about six months that I never even went to um, for, 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 for those six months. They make their money whether you show up or not. My, the point of that being the subscription model is so much more profitable than a fee-for-service model. And what the pharmaceutical companies are doing now is they're shifting the entire population away from a fee-for-service model to a subscription model, because you're absolutely right. The efficacy does drop off. We're seeing that in the data now. That's why we're seeing places with high vaccination rates still getting large amounts of cases passing through the community. So what happens then? Well, you need the third booster shot. You need the fourth booster shot. This is never going to stop because the pharmaceutical companies, think of it like your antivirus on your computer, right? You've got an antivirus on your computer. Mm -hmm. Oh, your antivirus is out of date. We need to patch your antivirus. We need to bring it up to date so that it can handle all the latest threats. That's exactly what they're doing with the human population. And we're going to have to get our, our antivirus, our immune system is going to have to get updated every six months with a shot in the arm. Uh, and every single time they're, they're getting paid for that. I mean, from, a, from a, a, a completely unethical business perspective, this is genius. This is yes. absolute genius. I mean, yes. I mean, props to the person who, thought, who had the, the goal to think they'd be able to pull this off. And, and in some countries, it looks like it's, it's actually working. It's working here. Sadly, including our country. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and, and that's despite the health minister, um, Greg Hunt, saying recently, these are the words, we, no, the world is engaged in the largest clinical vaccination trial. Topher, you are a lab rat if you take that virus. No, no, no. I'm in the Excuse control me, group. I'm not a lab rat. Yeah, I'm in the control group. Every trial needs a control group. <laughs> I'm in the control group, all right? Yeah. And, and I know there's millions of other Australians that are in the control group, and they're going to stay in the control group through thick and thin. Um, now, and I cannot rule out that in a couple of years, when we have a lot more data, I may yet take one of these vaccines. Yeah. I'm not going to do it because they told me I have to. And I'm certainly not going to do it until we've had many years more data. And I'm going to hold off on my kids having them at all, if possible, 
And if they want to have them once they're adults, then then they can make that decision for themselves. But I'm going to try and get them all the way to adulthood without having had any of this stuff put into their body. Mm-hmm. And then they can make up their own minds because we just don't know. This is this is this is the thing that so many people don't seem to understand. It doesn't matter that 100 million people have had a vaccine so far. No one's had a vaccine for two years. Like we don't or know a what second generation or a third generation, or a second generation or a third generation. We don't know. And we cannot know. It requires time before we're, we're going to know that. Well, I have promised after previous slow chats, I've had some complaints from the audience saying, Hey, we need a toilet break. So we've been going for just over an hour <laughs> now. So let's just hit pause on this conversation. Uh, I'm going to go and recharge my, my mug of tea. So we're going to go quiet for a couple of minutes. Malcolm, grab yourself another beer or something like that. Make yep. sure you're nice and comfortable. Uh, we will reconvene in three or four minutes and we will continue this absolutely fascinating conversation with Senator Malcolm Roberts.
Alrighty, welcome back. Uh, thank you for sticking with us through a very brief little break there to allow people to relieve bladders, recharge glasses, grab beers, etc. I'm going to make sure my cigar is still going. Uh, we did try and play my latest video, COVID-19 versus statism, but for some reason the audio was not working. So apologies for that. Uh, but if you do want to see that video, then uh, all you need to do is uh, go to my Facebook page or go to my YouTube channel and you'll find it there, uh, Statism versus C19. Uh, I can see Dave is working in the background. I've got Dave Pello helping me out. First time ever that I've had a producer, someone doing that for me. So he's working on it right now, trying to get that working. Uh, Dave, if you get the audio working, then feel free to stick that on full screen and we'll just watch that through. But uh, it's my latest little video that's uh, a bit of fun, a bit of uh, satire. In the spirit of Monty Python, I don't claim to be on their level, but in the spirit of Monty Python. So if we don't get it working tonight, then please jump on my Facebook page or jump on my YouTube channel, wherever you're watching this. And uh, you can go into the videos tab and you'll see it there as a fairly recent video. Uh, it's called the Infectious Diseases Hall of Fame, Statism uh, versus COVID-19. Uh, a little bit of fun, a little bit of nonsense that we've had. Now, before we get uh, Senator Malcolm Roberts back on, I do just want to mention again, I have for the first time <coughs> Excuse me. You don't inhale cigars. I just breathed in through my nose at the wrong moment. Got to keep this thing alive. It's trying to go out on me. Okay, subscribe star. Thank you, David. Uh, so this literally launched today. I have never asked for financial support on an ongoing basis before. I've only ever done fundraising for specific projects. Uh, and I'm changing that as of today. I'm wanting to become more active. I'm wanting to do a lot more than what I'm currently doing. But to do that, I need some resources. I need to be able to divert my attention that's currently consu <clears throat> consumed by silly little things like paying bills uh, across to actually doing more of this. So that means I need some more resources. So if you are in a position where you can, uh, and if you would like to, then please uh, jump on subscribestar.com forward slash Field, or just go to subscribestar.com and um, just search for Topher Field, you'll find me there. It literally launched today. I think I've got about three people who've jumped on it so far because uh, it's been live for literally a few hours. So if you would like to help me to do more of what I do, uh, and if you don't know what I do, then spend some time on my Topher page on Facebook. It's the best place at the moment to explore. Jump into the videos tab, have a look at the uh, Infectious Diseases Hall of Fame video, COVID-19 versus statism, and uh, enjoy watching that. And if you'd like to see more of it, uh, then please jump in and uh, and give me some support that way so I can do that. Enough of that, though, because tonight we're enjoying a wonderful slow chat with Senator Malcolm Roberts. Now, it's already been incredibly stimulating and a lot of fun. We've covered a fair bit of territory already. I want to move on to this issue of vaccine passports specifically. And you mentioned earlier the, the federal government doesn't have the authority to mandate <laughs> vaccines. The state governments think they do. I think morally they don't, but they believe that they do. But what we're actually seeing is both governments are kind of delegating onto private industry and encouraging private businesses to start requiring their staff to be vaccinated. This is what we've seen with SPC uh, down in, in, in Southern Australia, now put, putting out the word that they're going to require all their employees to have been vaccinated. We're seeing it in practice with a lot of truck drivers are trying to cross borders right now and they can't even get into Queensland or can't, you know, can't get around and do their jobs unless they have proof of, of vaccination. Excuse me, what are your thoughts on this attempted privatisation of um, vaccine passports? 
Well, you see more of my thoughts coming out in a few days because um, okay. what we did with this, uh, and I'll get to that in a minute, but what we did when we saw Scott Morrison announce, was it Monday last week? Um, time's, time's moving quickly. Um, that he'd broken his promise, reversed his promise not to have uh, mandated vaccines and instead yep. said that all aged care people all aged care workers would would be required to have a vaccine yep. uh, vaccination <clears throat> and we then put a post up on on my facebook page uh, senator's page and uh, we said if you're in the aged care sector and you work there tell us what you think and we were swamped with phone calls my staff yep. were really some of them were quite upset because they'd had to deal with people crying over the phone. Yeah. Over, it wasn't just that people are saying, I'm pregnant. I don't know what it'll do to my precious baby that I'm carrying. I don't know yeah. what it'll do to, to my next child. Um, don't know what it'll do to me. That's not what yeah. was really, I mean, that was bothering some, obviously. But what was really coming through was these people saying, I am not going to do this, which means I'll have to leave my patient, my my guests, my residents, mm -hmm. and just quit the job. Mm -hmm. And I don't know who's going to look after them. Yeah. We, we know that the vaccination, the correct. We know that the vaccinate, the, the healthcare sector is looking urgently for more workers. Uh, and I don't think it's just to do with the, with, with the, um, the, how, what do you call it? A breakout in COVID numbers in New South Wales. But <laughs> there are, nah. there are serious threats going on here. And, and the federal government tried to do that through the states. I believe, Topher, that when the, when the federal government gets the state government to do its work to get around the Constitution, it is still a federal government initiative. It's in breach mm -hmm. of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. so, so what we said to people, we, we just had to take down our Facebook post because we couldn't handle the calls. And we were getting yeah. hundreds of calls and some were really upset people, terrified, yeah. frustrated, angry, deeply concerned. Um, yeah. And, and they just wanted someone to turn to. So what we did the next day, we said, okay, let's put up another post and just get people to send their emails. Yeah. We had to get a volunteer in to go through the volume. We've had hundreds, more than a 1,000 emails yeah. from aged care yeah. workers. We've got their permission to actually compile these, remove, redact their any identification, um, and, and send it to the prime minister doing We've also decided to do is put together a kit, a first aid kit mm. for COVID. It's going to be pretty comprehensive. It'll take us a while to do it. But one of the things we found, we actually got this idea from some one of our supporters who gave it to us from England, is we've developed a draft letter. Now, we're not lawyers, so we're not going to say to people, do this. But we are going to say to people in introducing this, this draft letter, mm. consider the use of this. If you want to flat outright just say that to the government or to your employer, <laughs> fine, mm. go ahead. Mm. Mm. Uh, we're not recommending you do that, though. The second thing is if you've got uh, a condition of employment that says you will take a vaccination, as some healthcare workers do have, aged care workers, with regard to the flu vaccine, yeah. um, then that puts you in a difficult position. But you can still use this letter. This letter, Topher, I, I haven't got it in front of me and I don't know all the points. I've read it myself and approved it and with minor changes. It was, it was developed by lawyers, checked. This letter basically says, Dear employer, as your employee, I will agree to having a vaccination on these conditions. Mm. These conditions include 
that you will 100% indemnify me if I, uh, or my estate, if I die yeah. or have serious yeah. uh, injuries. Yeah. You will give me the contents of the vaccine so that I know what's in it, all of the ingredients. Mm -hmm. You will give me the best knowledge of information about the vaccine, its effects and its side effects. Mm. And there are other conditions. We've got, I think, about eight conditions in there, all perfectly reasonable. And yeah. you would expect if you're going to make it left. mandatory. You accept you accept liability. Correct. It's, and I don't think there will be a single employer who will sign that damn thing. Yeah. And so that means that, hey, hey, Topher, you're my boss, but I've just agreed. Yeah. 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 You're That's not right. signing it. And yeah. OK, yeah. you can't dismiss me now. Yeah. So put the responsibility back on the employers because. You know, I've been an employer. I've worked on behalf of employers as an executive, as a manager, general manager. So I know what it's like. But those yeah. employers will shove it straight back onto the government. And yeah. we've already got the Business Council of Australia um, saying that they don't think this is fair. It's damn right it's not fair. It's an yeah. added burden. It puts them in the firing line. It adds, adds to their, especially small business, their cost of administration, mm -hmm. their, their exposure to um, union bosses. And, you know, there's another thing. Unions ran a mile from this. We, they didn't hear boo until the CFMEU Construction Division yeah. stood up just yeah. uh, this Which morning was good or yesterday. To see because up until then... I was, I was delighted. There, there was nothing. There was nothing before No. It, it, um, it's I, I, Sorry. I think the union that looks after... Oh, I can't remember the name. I should know the name. They're, they're a pretty decent bunch to deal with. Um, they look after the, age, uh, the aged care sector. They okay. did stand up. They did, they did okay, stand good. up. Good. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't aware of that. This. Uh, tell me if I'm going too far or being unfair here, but this appears to me to be medical apartheid. Correct. I, I can't see any other way to characterise it. And it's an extraordinary turn of events, given that in the Western world over the last 60 years, we have torn down so many barriers. You know, segregation ended in the US in the 60s. Apartheid ended in South Africa. We've been making it more and more possible for people to, to you know, whether it's disabled people, you know, wheelchair access, uh, not discriminating against people with autism. We've been trying to make society more and more inclusive. This has been a real focus of the last six, seven decades of Western civilization. And now in a year and a half, we've turned that on its head. And there are a lot of people celebrating the idea of excluding the unvaccinated, excluding these unclean people what does that say about who we actually are as a country and in a way i'm almost looking for a little bit of hope here because the the numbers aren't very encouraging uh, around around what the australian people actually want are, are the are the polls true are we is this actually what a majority of people want and therefore given that we are we work as a democratic country is this kind of here to stay if you put it to the australian um in that sense there's no way they'd agree, they'd agree that that's what they want. No way at all. Sure. But this sure. has been very cleverly done. Um, I was listening to Mike Ryan interviewing Piers, um, I can't remember the man's second name, Robinson, Piers Robinson of Britain, who does yeah. a lot of work in, in uh, research in propaganda, especially in politics and war. Yeah. And he said that this is by far the worst example or the best example of propaganda mm. used to turn turn people and he said, this is going on around the world. And he said, there's no doubt in his mind. This guy's a very calm, sensible, rational person. Mike Ryan is too. He runs Business News Asia, Asia Pacific. He's done a phenomenal job of interviewing people, specialists all around the world, medical side, scientific side, political yep. side, yep. Uh, doing a phenomenal job. Anyway, this is propaganda. And what this 
Piers uh, Robinson said was that very early on in propaganda campaigns, and they mm. called this an information campaign, I think. Anyway, um, very early on in successful propaganda campaigns, they make sure that you have two sides and you get those sides fighting. Yeah. And then you have one side defending against the other. And it's, it's always the case. And so what they've done is they've set up a, a way to alienate people. Now, if you look at what's going on in the population, there is a range of, of uh, views as, as to the vaccines. There mm. are some people who are vaccine compliant. Stick it in me quickly. Get it in now. Yep. I want yep. it. Okay, yep. that's yep. fine. Hey, you're allowed to do that. Yep. It's your the body. Next, next, next group is vaccine reluctant. Oh, shit, I don't really want this, but oh, yeah. okay, I'll take it. I'm a bit worried about the side effects, but but I'll, I need to see my grandmother in, 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 um, in aged care facility. I, okay, yep. I'll do it. Yeah. Next one is vaccine hesitant. Hey, I'm not so sure about this. I mm. don't know if I can take this. Mm. The next one is vaccine resistant. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to do this until I get the proof. Yeah. I'll wait for a couple of years. Yeah. The last one is vaccine opponent. Mm. Every one of those five categories is deserves respect. I'm sure. not going to judge you if you're if you're anti-vaccine. But what yeah. we've seen going on here is a complete fabrication into yeah. vaxxers and anti-vaxxers. Yeah. That's simplifying and it's Two dishonest. Camps. That's it. No. Yeah. But what we've also seen is the the claim that you're not taking the vaccine, Topher, therefore you're endangering my health. Mm-hmm. And we now find out, oh, let's let's go back to Senate estimates in, in May, uh, just two or three months ago. I asked the head of the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the chief medical officer, and the secretary of the Federal Health Department yeah. some questions. First of all, can you give me a 100% guarantee on the safety of these vaccines? No, no. we can't. Yeah. Can you give me, um, a, can you tell me what the dose of the vaccines is? No, we can't. Can you dose. tell me how many times the people will be dosed? No, we can't. Can you tell me the frequency with which those doses occur? How, what's the difference mm. gap between them? No, we can't. Mm. Can you tell me whether the virus will be transmissible by the vaccinated? Yes, it will be. Yeah, the data tells us clearly. Can you tell us? Well, that w- they knew this when they were putting it in before they were really mm. getting wound up on, mm. on the campaign. But can you tell me whether or not uh, the vaccinated will catch COVID? They will catch it. Can you tell me that vaccinations will end lockdowns? No. Can you tell me that vaccinations will end other restrictions? No. Yeah. So what the hell are we doing injecting this stuff into our body? Yeah. This TOFA is the first time in Western civilization that I understand it, Western history, where governments have injected healthy people with something that could kill them. In America, there have been 10,000 deaths, more than 10,000. There have been 4,000 with is it Crohn's disease with one high side of the face collapses, uh, more than 1,000 miscarriages, people mm. with heart problems now coming mm. out of this, blood clotting. And yet, I won't mention any names, any, any <laughs> product names. You've just Please warned don't. me about this because I've been yep. banned for doing this on, on, yep. on YouTube. But yep. there is... Um, Medicine, I told you that I'm very strongly supportive of any medicine that is proven thoroughly to be safe, um, effective, and preferably affordable. Mm-hmm. 
There is one that's been on the market for around 60 years. Mm-hmm. It's now very affordable because it's out of patent. Mm-hmm. Um, we've ha- it's been given in 3.7 billion doses around the world for various ailments, various conditions. Mm-hmm. When I came back from India in 2014, and it's, by the way, it's been approved for certain treatments in this country since 2013. Yeah. When yeah. I came back from India with a, with a condition, um, it was potentially life-threatening. And, um, and, and I was given doses of, of this particular medicine yeah. fixed like that. No yeah. side effects. The only yeah. side effects that people sometimes mention with this particular medicine is headaches. Yep. That's it. Okay. Yep. Uh, and that's not, that's not all that common apparently. But anyway, now, so it's safe. It's affordable. Is it effective with COVID? Mm. Well, let's look, have a look at that. There are now more than 40 papers, around 50 papers saying it is. Yep. We now have uh, Uttar Pradesh in India, which I think is a state of about 220 million people mm. swearing by it. Mm-hmm. We now have other states in India doing the same. We have uh, Argentina and other South American countries swearing by it. Mm-hmm. We now have its proven success in some small in, uh, European countries, some Asian countries. Yep. We now have someone in this country who's administered it to people who were very sick in quarantine with mm-hmm. COVID. And the 24 people that he administered it to all quickly recovered. Very sick, quickly recovered. The two that did not get it died. Yeah. Now, this particular um, medicine is not approved for use with COVID in this country. I've got subscriptions for it. Mm. I've got it in my house. Mm. Other people have got it. Mm -hmm. And why shouldn't you be able to get it? Yeah. Why shouldn't everyone be able to get it? Because you asked me a question and we didn't finish the answer to it. What do we need to do to stop this bullshit that's going on? First yeah. of all, we need to a- approve those kinds of antiviral drugs that are proven mm-hmm. safe, affordable, and effective. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. That will stop it overnight. And by the way, that'll open up the borders. That'll do a lot of things because what we know is that this is not only safe and proven, but it works very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And here's a country that we are we are forcing people to take something that could kill a healthy person into that body. At the same time, we are knowingly withholding a proven, safe, effective, affordable treatment from people who are sick. That's immoral. Mm. But the other thing I just just remembered is that this particular medicine not only cures COVID as a treatment very, Mm. very quickly, Mm. it prevents the transmission of it. Yeah. So... What is not to like about this? And and it's cheap enough that it can be taken prophylactically by those at high Correct. risk. You can actually it, Correct. it would it would have cost us a mere fraction. I mean, a tiny fraction of what we've spent uh, combating COVID mm-hmm. if we had simply said everyone over X age, everyone with comorbidities, regardless of age, we will give you scripts for free. Go down to the chemist, get this stuff. We we will ramp up supplies to make sure there's enough of it. Just start taking it prophylactically. Uh, if if all the high risk people did that, the cost of that would be a mere fraction, barely visible compared to the cost of what we've done. You're, 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 what you're saying applies just to a comparison between the cost of using this medicine, proven safe, effective medicine, yep. versus the cost of the viruses, v- vaccines. Yep. I'm the sorry, vaccines. it's let tiny alone. compared to the vaccines. Let alone the yep. lockdowns. Let alone all the rubbish we're going through, the lost productivity. And by the way. My criteria for dealing with this, and you'll see a lot more coming out soon. Mm. Number one is health. 
Mm-hmm. Number two is freedom. Mm-hmm. Number three is government accountability. At the moment, the lockdowns and the other measures that we're putting into people are, are negatively affecting health. In a big Number way. two, they're destroying freedom. Mm-hmm. Number three, they're destroying future health by mm-hmm. killing our economy. The mm-hmm. future health depends upon the strength of our economy, the health of the economy. That's how we yep. can afford healthcare in the future. Yeah, yep. We're not only doing that, we're increasing suicide, attempts mm-hmm. at, attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. We're, we're causing people who have got um, known conditions or suspected known conditions of not going to the doctor, putting off treatment. Yeah. This is going to amount to a huge health bill and a deteriorating health. You know, can, and can we're, I- we're locking people up out of vitamin D. Mm-hmm. This is just mm-hmm. nuts. I want to give just a, a very small anecdote. Yes, it's anecdotal, uh, but it happened to me and my wife. So we were expecting our second child when all the lockdowns started. We were already expecting. And uh, as my, my wife got into her third trimester, and actually I think she was in month eight, she started to get quite a lot of dizziness and weakness and other signs that things weren't right. And so we then tried to get into a hospital. We couldn't because she wasn't actually an emergency patient. She hadn't collapsed on the floor yet. They wouldn't let us in. We then tried to get into a doctor, a GP, just to get blood pressure tests and basic stuff. They wouldn't see us. They refused us at the door. We ended up going into a chemist and practically begging. Practically begging him, and he he agreed, to just take my wife's blood pressure, just just as a first little bit of diagnosis to try and understand what was happening to her. Her blood pressure was fine. Uh, we focused on getting her rehydrated and, and looking after herself you know, a little bit better. She might've overexerted herself or whatever. And the symptoms thankfully went away. So for us, happy ending, good story, right? Now, mind you, the, the whole, the maternal healthcare, the maternal nurses, I'm, I'm not gonna criticize the people working in maternal healthcare, but the actual level of care for my wife in the latter stage of her pregnancy and and through the birth was abysmal, absolutely appalling in in a a supposedly first world country with a first rate medical system. Thankfully for us, there was nothing seriously wrong, but that exact treatment would have been given to us even if there had been something seriously wrong. And by the time my wife would have gotten any meaningful care, things would have progressed far past the point where where, where it, it was up to at that point in time. Who knows what the outcome would have been? I mean, we are, we are being inhumane. We are being cruel in, in our fear of this one thing. That, and it's not even a rational fear. I'm not even talking about the rational fear, uh, given all the fear-mongering that's gone on in the media at, at the public level. I'm talking about at a political level, they're afraid of the number. They're afraid of the number on the report. That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of the political implications of a number on a report and what that might do to their popularity. And as a result, pregnant women can't get basic medical care in a first world country. Who have we become? What, what does this say about us? This, this is nothing unusual, Topher. It's not a matter of becoming. What's happening mm. is governance is going along the same merry way it's been going for the last few decades. Abysmal ignorance of the data, conning people, doing things that will look good, not do good, doing yeah. things to get elected, doing things to con the people, doing things to get a headline doing things to ramp up fear so that the incumbent gets more um, security for staying in office at the next election, Yeah, doing things that look after vested interests, doing things that look after party donors. This is the way the governments in this country runs, and we keep calling it out, Pauline and I, because yeah. it's, just, it's just abysmal what's going on. 
Now, I was going to say something there. Oh, that's right. So what we've got now is we've got people who've ramped up the fear mm. to get complicity, to condition people that they will take notice of the government, do whatever the government says. I mean, yeah. I was walking through Brisbane Airport a couple of months ago coming back from Canberra, I think it was, and across the loudspeaker in the airport. It was like 1984. Yeah. Um, yes, yes. It, it was It was. the state has made directives about how you will conduct yourself in this airport, something like that. You will obey these directives. And I'm going, what the hell have I walked into? This is Brisbane. Yeah. What country have I landed in? Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was almost that severe, that blunt. Um, it certainly instantly reminded me of a dicta dictatorial totalitarian regime. But the the thing is the politicians have now dug themselves so deep. One lie leads to another lie, leads to another lie, leads to another lie. They're up to hearing bullshit and they can't dig they can't themselves out. out. They can't get the, out. The simple thing would be to get the evidence, as I have, from the government's own chief medical officer and then say, hang on, this is not going to work. The simple thing yeah. would be to go to Taiwan and say, what have you guys done? Yeah. It's basic. How have the you simple guys thing it? is exactly. But the, the other simple thing is the state government. Oh, I've, I've, um, I said, you know, that we, we said to the government back in March and April last year that we would expect the data and a plan and we will hold them accountable. Yeah. So in March this year, I, I wrote twice to the Prime Minister and twice to my Queensland Premier. No mm. evidence. Mm. She even wrote back, one of her staffers wrote back and said, go to this particular website and you'll find all the evidence you need. Bullshit. Nothing there. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so I've got the evidence off the Chief Medical Officer and I used that opportunity in Senate Estimates to say in March, look, I've got these six strategies for managing a virus. Can I just check them with you? Sorry, I had five. Mm. Can, can I mm. just check them with you? And uh, they said, sure. So here they are. I said, the first strategy is lockdowns. Okay, mm -hmm. I'll come back to that in a minute because I'm not, I'm not a, a, in favour of lockdowns, apart from one, one exception. And they said, yes, that's a valid strategy. Okay, good. Number two, testing, tracing, quarantining. Yes, that's a valid strategy. Mm -hmm. Number three, restrictions in the form of masks or social distancing. Yes, that's a valid strategy. Number four, vaccines. Oh, yes, yes, that's a valid strategy. Number five, the use of antivirals. Yes, yes, that's a strategy. And then we got, got talking and they said, actually, there's another one. There's a sixth one. So they mentioned this. And I said, what's that? Personal hygiene. I said, what do you mean by that? Oh, washing hands and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree with that. Yeah. So I've now yeah. got six, five mines, one from them. Yeah. Yeah. So I come back in May and say, you know, you, you uh, agreed with me on those six. I've got another one. People's health and, uh, and fitness. Yes, yes, that's definitely one, mm -hmm. you know. Okay, so we've now got seven. So I said to them, is there any of those seven that shouldn't be there? No, 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 they should all be there. Have I missed any? No, no, that's comprehensive. That's it. <laughs> Where the hell is the plan based on those strategies? Yeah, yeah. The state government's using lockdowns. Now, if we look at lockdowns, the United Nations World Health Organization is a corrupt, dishonest, incompetent body. Mm -hmm. They withheld news of the virus, which enabled mm -hmm. it to get a march in the West, mm -hmm. and that caught us all, all off guard. They told lies about the virus. Mm -hmm. They said it wasn't transmissible from humans to humans. Bullshit. Yeah. They knew all of this. If they didn't, they're so grossly incompetent. Oh, yeah. Now, even they, even they have now come out and said 
that lockdowns are a blunt instrument that should be used only initially to get control of a virus. Mm. And, so and, if I, and if I understand it, correctly, only if the only if the hospital system's capacity is being exceeded. If well, I, if, that, I, if I understand that's implicit, correctly, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a very good addition. Thank you for the clarification. So, Topher, every time a lockdown is used, hmm. it's an admission from that premier that they are not controlling the virus. It's out of control. Mm-hmm. And so that is a fundamental admission that those state mm-hmm. governments are only using lockdowns, even though yep. the World Health Organization, that crooked, corrupt, dishonest, incompetent body, says even they say that yep. you shouldn't yep. use it. Now, the, the federal government is funding these bloody things. Yeah. So we've actually yeah. got the reverse of, of competitive uh, federalism in our, con- which yeah. is the fundamental plank of our constitution. We've now got competitive welfareism. Yeah. We'll make the decision in the states, and you'll fund it as the prime minister. Yeah. And we can yeah. do whatever we want just to get votes. But then the federal government, apart from funding this, this is now doing only one thing: vaccines, mm. pushing an unproven, mm-hmm. not properly tested medicine on people at the threat of losing their livelihoods. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah. yet there are seven different strategies that all yeah. need to be employed. And when we come to um, the plan, it needs to be a plan for the various categories who've got different um, mortality rates according to their age, according to their comorbidities. Yeah. Yeah. We're not even close plan. to planning. No. No. Now, I'm getting a number of questions that, that are, are pretty much on point. Uh, with where I, I kind of I wanted to get to this with you because I know this is something you're very very passionate about. I think it's something that's not spoken about enough by reasonable evidence based people. The people that normally talk about this subject that we're about to move on to, unfortunately, um, shoot their own credibility in the foot by tying in a whole bunch of other things. So um, I, I'm happy to talk about it with you, even though I've not spoken about it with anybody else up to this point in time. Um, and that is the issue of the UN and where. Whether it's opportunism, whether it was a plan, what have you, what is going on with our seeming like it doesn't seem like we're a country anymore. It seems like we are a sub-state of the UN because as soon as they come up with some new harebrained idea, whether it's the World Health Organization or other UN bodies, um, they're telling us what to do with our land. They're telling us what to do with our our social policies. They're telling us what to do uh, financially. What is going on with the UN? And why are we? Why are we as a country, seemingly, I don't know. We, we have no will to actually make our own decisions at a political level. They're just going with what they they seem to be being told. Right. Well, um, when you invited me to this show, um, you you asked me if there's anything else I'd like to raise, and this is one of the yeah. topics. And, and one of yeah. your early callers said you we want to talk about the UN. Yeah. So let's just go through some facts. These are facts. Yep. In 1996, John Howard, well, let me tell you a bit of background. This is going to take a while. Sure. But yeah, no, we, we've got time. That's the point. Okay. John Howard was a bit of a hero of mine, and I mm. use the word was. Um, I will say the same thing, was. I agree. So when he retired, when he got the boot from politics, uh, got kicked out of the prime ministership, mm. I wrote him a letter saying, basically, you've been atop the political scene. Even the Labor Party has taken your, your uh, policies and implemented them. Um, and you've been atop the political scene for 30 years. Thank you very much for all you've done. Now, I didn't write to, that's the first time I've written a letter like that uh, to a politician. So that was in 2007. I got a lovely letter back 
saying, thank you very much. That's deeply appreciated. Okay, good. In 2014, I'd done seven years of research into the climate and other Mm -hmm. factors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wrote him another letter. I rescind my previous letter. Yeah, wow. I didn't get a reply. (laughs) So the first thing is that under the federal constitution in section 51, clause uh, 31, it says that if the federal government interferes with the rights to use someone's property, it must pay just terms compensation. Mm-hmm. Now, when the UN Kyoto Protocol was uh, brought into place in 1996, John Howard said, we won't be signing it. And everyone clapped. But he said, yep. we will be complying with it. Yeah. That meant cutting down the carbon dioxide coming out of factories, cars, mm-hmm. uh, industrial complexes, power stations. Now, the Liberal National Party at that time recognised that Australians wouldn't buy that. Yep. So what they did was that they took farmers' land use rights. And so if you buy a plot of dirt in this country, Topher, then you have the right to use it. You're buying the you, rights you to should. use it. You should. Yeah, that's what, that's what you had. Mm-hmm. What, what um, the Howard government did was it said to the states, we want you to implement native vegetation protection laws to stop the clearing of land. Mm. You have, as the a, as a property owner, just lost value enormously. That's right. That was never compensated because the states can do it without compensation. Not so not only legally, was yes. Yeah, not, correct. Not only was it done, it was done deceitfully to get around the Constitution. Yeah. And to stop that. Now, farmers have been carrying that, that cost of compliance with the UN's climate dictates ever mm-hmm. since. Now, that's been admitted indirectly and inadvertently several times along the way. That's okay. the first thing. But I want, want people to understand that the loss of the rights to use property is sacrosanct within the Liberal Party, or it used to be. Used to be, yeah. And it's sacrosanct to a free society because when you have property, you have people striving to get property and they mm. take responsibility for their lives. It's fundamental to freedom. It's fundamental mm. to... To, um, uh, to prosperity. To prosperity. Thank you. Next thing, the EPBC Act, Environmental Protection and Biodiversity and Conservation Act, um, that was driven by the UN agenda. It's locking yep. up land. Yep. The Water Act of 2007. Now, you've read that, I'm sure. The Water Act in three or four places, yep. I think it's four, I've read it, except for the last few pages, which I've mm. still got to do. But uh, the, the Water Act says, as you know, we have these aims for the Water Act. Yeah. And primary among those aims is compliance with the international agreement. Mm-hmm. What the hell have mm-hmm. we got that written into national legislation for this country? Yeah. Can I can I just jump in for a second on the Kyoto Protocol? So a number of years ago, I did I did a series of videos called the Fifty to One Project. Oh, that's uh, brilliant! Oh, thank you. I, I interviewed a number of eminent scientists around the world. I I, I crowdfunded for that. Uh, we had an, we didn't have enough budget to get over and see Vaslav Klaus um, in um, in Prague, so we had to cut Europe out of the trip, and we lost a number of interviews there. But I, 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 I met him, US. by the way. He's a wonderful man. I met I, him twice. I, yeah, oh. honestly. Honestly, I, I am hurting out of everything I've not been able to do in my life that I wanted to do and, and was hoping to do, not being able to go and see him is, is yep. pretty much number one on the list. Um, but I was able to get to the US, Canada, and a number of people in Australia. One of the people that I interviewed was, uh, I believe his doctor, but uh, David Evans. Now, he is the scientist 
who wrote the formula for the Australian federal government to calculate its compliance with the Kyoto Protocol. He was as as much of a believer as you could possibly get, and now he's completely changed his views on on the role of of um, carbon dioxide and and its impact on the climate, etc. So even the people that were believers back then, many of the key people have actually walked away from it since, and have actually have actually turned around and gone, actually, no, we were wrong. We we shouldn't be pursuing this particular path. But the UN, and especially we, you know, I'm sure you're aware, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recently released a new AR and new assessment report, <laughs> uh, and of course that fueled a whole bunch of cataclysmic headlines about how we were headed for disaster. Uh, I don't take those very seriously anymore because when I was a kid, I read this thing called The Boy Who Cried Wolf. Uh, it's a pretty mm-hmm. it's a pretty complicated little story. Um, probably you've never heard of it. Um, you know, I'm sure <laughs> that no one else could possibly have comprehended it. Obviously, our politicians haven't comprehended it. But what it teaches you is that when people keep telling you there's a disaster coming and the d- disaster doesn't happen, sooner or later you need to stop paying attention to those people, or people you know should stop paying attention to them. The IPCC and and global warming sort of cabal have been predicting disaster ten years away, and they've been predicting that for fifty years now, and the disaster has never come. So when this new spate of headlines driven by the new assessment report of, oh, we're 10 years away, we're 10 years away, you just have to, you have to laugh, otherwise you'd cry, because they've been saying this for 50 years now, and yet somehow they're still taken seriously, and clearly, based on what you're saying, taken very seriously here in Australia. Yeah, I, I could talk about the IPCC for an hour, but we won't mm. get onto that now. But <laughs> let me just tell you what I heard from Al Gore recently. He was very upset, Topher. Mm. He said, what's this man doing running around the countryside saying we've only got 12 years left? He said, I've been saying that for 30 years. It's my idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Oh, my goodness. That's, we, we, we're, climate bullshit is driving this. So the Water yeah. Act, so you know um, John Briscoe. You've heard of John Briscoe? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Wonderful report. Mm. He mm. came out here in 2007. He was an expert in water around the world. He came mm. out here in 2007 and wrote a very glowing report. Oh, he didn't write a report. He said that mm. this is really well done. You're probably the best in the world. Yeah. Came back in 2011, four years after Malcolm Turnbull and John Howard introduced the Water Act and said, you've mm. gone from top of the pack to worst. It's yeah. an absolute disgrace. And the whole thing is driven by politicization. He unfortunately passed away not long yeah. after uh, that, and we lost his voice. But he is... His work still stands as some of yes. the finest and clearest work on the subject that you could possibly find anywhere. John Briscoe, if you if you haven't seen his work yep. and you're interested in water policy, look him up. Yes, I, I strongly endorse that. The next mm. thing, so we've covered property, which is fundamental. We've covered water, which is fundamental. Energy. The UN mm. Kyoto Protocol is driving the destruction of, of energy in this country. We now export our prime coking coal, and sorry, our prime thermal coal to thermal China. Coal, yeah where they yep. generate electricity at, and sell it at 8 cents a kilowatt hour, we sell mm-hmm. it at 25. The mm-hmm. same coal, not shipped. Yeah. Yeah. Now, people don't understand this, but manufacturing costs, the largest cost component of manufacturing is electricity. Mm-hmm. It's more than labour in most manufacturing industries. Yep. Yep. And so we are destroying jobs. We're actually killing jobs in our country with all these artificial imposts and the subsidies for renewables and climate policies... Oh. Uh, are, are now known to be $13 billion. I can justify that if I need to, if you want me to. Mm-hmm. No, no. Uh, $13 billion a year. It adds an additional $1,300 per year per household to costs of living. How someone on the on the median income of $49,000 can afford that after tax is beyond me. Um, th- this is cruel 
And, and not yeah. only does it drive down disposable income, but it kills jobs. Mm. I, We're I exporting our jobs to China. I had a surreal conversation probably, I don't know, eight or nine years ago now. Uh, I, I, was, I was with someone else's family and I heard two sisters uh, talking and they were, they, were, they were older, a generation older than me. And one of them was complaining about the cost of electricity. And this is 10 years ago. It's, it's only gone up since then. Complaining about the cost of electricity and the impact that that was having on, on their life and their lifestyle. The, her sister then turns around and says to her, oh, well, you should get solar put onto your house. We got the subsidy to get solar put onto our house and our electricity bills are ever so low as a result. And I couldn't help myself. I turned around and I said, you do realize that the reason that her electricity bills are so high is because of the subsidy that you're getting for your solar panels. You do realize that there's a cause and effect relationship here. Completely, completely mm. missed. They, mm. they couldn't even begin to fathom that, that, that the government giving away free money over here was costing someone else money over mm. here. It was, it was just lost completely on them. And at that moment, that, that was the first time I went, ah, Australia's in trouble. <laughs> so that conversation really, really <laughs> woke me up. Australia is in a lot of trouble. So, so I could talk for half an hour on energy, but let's mm. go on to the next one. So we talked about property rights, fundamental, water, mm -hmm. um, energy. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about food. The UN Food Systems Pre-Summit in Rome occurred about a couple of weeks ago. One of the outcomes from that, Topher, was mm. that every human should be allowed a maximum of beef per day of 14 grams. I did hear about this. This is this is insane. This is true. This yeah. is true, but that's that's not not the end of it. They want to put a $1.60 a kilogram beef tax. That will give the the UN billions of dollars. Mm. But get this. The Morrison Joyce government gave the UN's organization that's doing that 64 million dollars of your money, our money. To fund this bullshit. Yeah. What they want to do is create an insect eating industry. They want to make replace beef with insects yeah. for protein. Yeah. The yeah. CSIRO has, has produced a glossy booklet. I think it's about 64 pages. Edible insects, a roadmap. Insect milkshakes, bug ice cream, granola bars made from dried cockroach. I'm not kidding you. What the hell are we doing funding this mob? It would yeah, be funny stuck. if it wasn't actually serious. Like these people, they they mean it. They mm -hmm. believe that they're the smartest people in the room and they believe that the world will be a better place if we all just fell into line and, and did as we were told. It's, it, it's an astonishing level of arrogance, of hubris. But I, I get that. That's a human, that's part of the human condition, mm. right? What I don't get is why our politicians fall into line with these guys. I mean, someone like Kevin Rudd, I understand, because he viewed being the Prime Minister <laughs> as an audition for being the Secretary General of the UN, right? He didn't aspire to be the Prime Minister. He wanted to be the Sec General of the UN, and that's how he viewed being our Prime Minister. So him, I understand. But why, do, why, why does it seem like every Prime Minister, I would say including John Howard, I think he was far softer than he ought to have been, although I'm sure he would disagree, but certainly from after John Howard and beyond, Liberal and Labor, why are they all going along with this? What's in it for them? Well, we get to that. Native title. Yep. It, I've just been up in Cape York listening to every community on Cape York, white, yep. black, didn't matter. That's the way we operate. Um, what we're finding time and time again mm. is Aboriginal communities saying, Native Title Act, we like the recognition of our 
ownership beforehand. Okay, that's good. Yeah. But we can't use it. We can't get access yeah. to our land. Yeah. It's yeah. locked up. And what the if you look at the preamble, and I haven't, but I, I, I had a barrister read it for me and advise me on it, is that the preamble to the Native Title Act is riddled with references to the UN. Yeah, right. So what this is is yet another locking up of land. Next, next thing, if you go to tax, the taxation, this is not a direct UN, um, uh, UN result, but our taxation now at the moment, multinationals don't pay much tax and they haven't since Robert Menzies' 1953 Double Taxation Recognition Act. But yep. it's not just the Liberals. The Labor Party under Bob Hawke did the PRRT, Petroleum Rent Resources Tax, which basically yep. said to the largest multinational taxation avoiders in the, in the world, Chevron being number one, you yep. don't have to pay tax. Yeah. They will never pay tax on exporting our gas. So when uh, there are so many figures here I could go into, but multinationals don't pay tax, which means you pay their share. Mm. They come and use the services that you and I pay for. Education system. That is crippling free thought and critical thinking. Those policies come from the UN. This is getting out of hand. The education, yes. What's happening in the education system is completely out of hand right now. Yep. I was having a discussion just the other day uh, with a father who is very concerned about one of his children because his, his child actually took screenshots because they're doing remote learning because we're in lockdown, took screenshots of it and actually uh, showed that in a science class, it was... Um, uh, biology and something else, a, a combined science class, that in this science class, they spent, and this has been multiple weeks, but they finally took screenshots, they spent the entire class learning about and, and listening to people talking about their feelings. And the whole class was all about the, the teacher asking, so how do you feel about being categorized as a biological male or a biological female? Like, how do you, does that sit well with you? Do you, do you feel like you should be something else? And all about how we should be respecting people's feelings. This is in a biology class. It's not humanities. It's not RE. It's not some other thing where, where, where okay, you can allow a certain amount of more subjectivity. This was in a biology class in mm. a high school and, and a good one in Melbourne. Mm. What I know there are transgender people who are genuinely uh, transgender. I, I understand mm. that. But they're a tiny proportion and we need to treat them with empathy. I get it. Yep. Yep. Not sympathy, but empathy. Yep. What, what we've got now is we've got girls at 14 chopping off their tits and we've got yep. boys cutting off their dicks. Irreversible and we've got, hormone And we've therapy. got hormone. Yeah, thank you. Irreversible hormone treatments. This is destroying the future generation. The Family Law Act was brought mm. in as a result of UN pressure. 50, okay. oh, more than 50 years ago, 75, which is what? Uh, That's how many the early is that? days 20, of the UN at that yeah, point. Yeah, 46 years. That's yeah. right. But the, but the UN drove that. Yeah. Um, we've got um, the United Nations World Health Organization enabled the spread of the virus outside China. They lied. Mm -hmm. they're, mm -hmm. they're stopping the use of known, proven, um, effective medicines. We get lectures from the UN Human Rights Council that is almost exclusively com composed of dictators and abusers of rights. Yes. We've got Queensland, East Coast agriculture being locked up and devastated, communities being smashed mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. so-called reef runoff regu regulations mm -hmm. that, that Jared Rennick and I, he deserves a good call out because he and I worked together in Senate, in Senate hearing in Queensland, completely tore apart their science. There's nothing there. Yeah. We've got the World Heritage Commission Committee. Get this. They can come in. This is why it's so important to fight their claims about the Great Barrier Reef, which are complete bullshit. The, the reef is healthy. They can come in 
if we if we if we say that the reef is in a mess, they can come in and, and we hand it to them to manage. They can come in and take charge of our asset, the Great Barrier Reef. They mm-hmm. can enact management control. They can even stop tourism. Then we've got the dictatorship. You know, Topher, if I point a gun at you, mm. you know that what I'm doing. But you, the most people don't understand how political correctness is used by the control freaks to control people, suppress voice, su- silence yes. people. Yes. So that's, that's so critical to understand. What they do is they shame people, they silence dissension and disagreement, which is yep. fundamental to human progress. You yep. and I don't agree on everything. And no. I'll learn something from you and maybe change my mind. Other times yep. I'll confirm my views. Yep. Um, they have got statutes to control and regulate people, take authority, unelected to govern. Then we've got our taxpayer money, more than a billion dollars a year, going to the ABC to support and drive these UN goals and programs. They laud and enshrine the UN goals. They misreport by omission. Climate change is just the the claims that we're affecting the climate through our industrial activity is bullshit. Mm -hmm. Um, And and they don't report things like Maurice Strong, who is the grandfather of, of global warming and climate change. Heads headed when he died in 2015, an unelected bureaucracy, and he has announced that their real goals are unelected socialist global governance and deindustrialization of Western civilization. These yeah. bastards are destroying jobs. They're affecting our food, our property rights, our water, our energy, our kids, our land. Um, they're affecting our education system. They're affecting family law, which is the the uh, which is just the slaughterhouse of the nation. So many people are suiciding. Families are being smashed. Yeah, this is what they're doing. They're destroying the values and 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 basis of our lovely country. And yeah. UN is unelected, as someone just said there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ma Ma was saying that unelected, absolutely. And yet, it seems as though our elected governments just simply bow down to to what they want. It's it's just an extraordinary situation that we find ourselves in. So you asked me a question: uh, Why do politicians do it? Yeah, it's really very simple. If you look closely. And I used to vote mainly liberal. I did vote Labor once because we had a, a donkey that I thought for a, a Liberal Party leader. Yeah. Excuse me. I regret that. But anyway, um, <laughs> I voted liberal. I woke up about 12 years ago, probably more than that. No, I woke up, yeah, yeah 12, 13 years ago. Yeah. And I voted only minor party since because the problem is not Labor or liberal nationals. If you look at their policies, honestly, I'm not saying this because I'm a politician, not in their yeah. parties, but if you look at their policies, they are the same. They differ only yes. in degree. Yes. They're the same. Those policies come from the UN through the Trojan horse in the Greens. The Greens yep. are there to enact UN policy. Yep. So the Greens use emotion and bullshit, blatant lies to con people, and then the young in particular, oh, my God, we've got to save the planet. Yeah. So what happens then is the Labor Party loses some of those lefty-inclined people to the Greens. So the Labor Party mm-hmm. then says, shit. We've got to get hold of those. So they move their policies to the Greens. And the Liberal Party says, hell, we're losing some of our soft Liberals to them, so we'll move those policies. Then you have Matthias Cormann, who I asked repeatedly when he was leader of the Senate, the government in the Senate, I want your evidence that we're affecting the climate. Oh, we've got all the evidence we need. We've got got to fulfil our commitments as a global neighbour, a global, global partner. We've got to do this. Thank you very much. So what happens is then you lock yourself in, as John Howard did, yeah. and then the Liberal Party locked itself in. They've had one courageous leader since then. That was Tony Abbott. He woke up on climate. Mm. And then you have other people like Greg Hunt 
good people like Craig Kelly and George Christensen and yeah. and uh, Corey Bernardi yeah. went to Tony Abbott and said, "Hey, the Bureau of Meteorology is concocting, distorting um, our climate data." So uh, Abbott ordered an inquiry. Well, Greg Hunt yep. took care of that. Greg Hunt <laughs> then just had a tea and bickies, and that was it. There was no formal inquiry into the data. There was no yeah. formal inquiry into the processes. They just looked at it superficially and said it's all good. Greg Hunt, people don't know this, but he's now health minister. No, they know yeah. that. But they don't yeah. realize that in 2000 and 2001, Greg Hunt was working on strategy in the World Economic Forum, pushing the Great Reset. Yeah, right. Okay, so I didn't know that you've either. got yeah, you've got um, – You've got a, a certain amount of a certain um, a few people who know what's going on. I suspect Greg Hunt does, uh, but you've clearly got people at the senior positions in the Labor Party. I, I could name some of them. They're very prominent in the Liberal Party and the Labor Party, mm. and they drive this through the UN. What we've also got, sadly, in the major parties, is a focus on the party, not the country. Yes, 100%. and what happens is they're basically told Topher you're in the Liberal Party, or Tofu, you're in the Labor Party, you want to get pre-selected, yep. mate? This is the way you vote. Hold Shut your mouth. Now, yep. there are some good people in the Labor Party. I, I, I deal mm. with them. They walk yep. up to me and, and after I finished a speech in the Senate and we're walking along the passageway together, they pat me on the back and say, keep going, mate, on your yep. climate. Keep going. Yep. Keep going yep. on your energy. But we they can't agree raise with their you own in, voice. Entirely. That's right. And the Liberal Party, it's not quite as bad. We've got a number of staunch... Um, climate realists like myself, they will say the same and occasionally they'll speak out. Yep. We've also got very prominent liberal national people who we know are sceptics, used to speak as sceptics. One of them was the most colourful and effective speaker in the country. When they go into cabinet, they suddenly become alarmists. They're suddenly having yeah. speeches saying that we're affecting the climate and we need to do something about it. Then they I come believe- out of cabinet and they they start backing the coal industry again. They've just smashed the coal industry. I've literally seen this happen with people that I know before they go into politics, and I won't say what party they went into, but there's two that I knew moderately well before they went into politics. They joined one of the major parties, um, and all of a sudden they're being trotted out on TV saying things that I know they Mm. don't believe. Mm. I know that that doesn't represent them at all, but clearly they have bought into this game of, well, if I just play the, the, the party line, if I just toe the line, then I'll move up the party, I'll get the promotions, I'll, I'll get the cabinet position, and then I'll be able to make a change. But they play that game for so long that by the time they get there, they've forgotten who they are and they've forgotten what they ever stood for, if they ever stood for anything. These two gentlemen I know did stand for something, yep. but I can't see it now. I can't see it in any of who they are now. There, yeah, so there's what something you- about that system that just destroys any of that individual thought. I can recommend, I, I rarely recommend books because I don't know people's background, but I can tell you that I got a lot out of a little book. It's a very short book written by a French philosopher called Simone Weil. And she said the destruction of democracy is due to the parties yeah, because okay. the parties take on a life of their own and the goal becomes get elected, grow the party, and that's what happens. And so yeah. now it, it's really interesting. It's not, I don't criticise Labor or Liberal. I call, criticise the Parliament. Yeah. The we are breaching the constitution. We we still have our constitution intact, but we're not complying with it in so many yeah, areas. It's dead letter. Sometimes it's, dead it's letter. subtle. Yeah, and, and and sometimes it's it's um, blatant. Um, and when you point it out, people are going, "What? What do you mean?" So yeah. <laughs> the answer to your question is, some of it's deliberate, but very mm-hmm. few people are in that category. Yeah. Most people go into the system genuinely caring. 
but they become converted and they become silent and they hang their head in shame. Some of them do speak up, only in the Liberal Party, uh, but they don't speak up very much outside the party, but they do rattle the cages within. Some are ignorant of this whole thing. They would just call me a lunatic. Some of them are uh, weak. They know that they're doing wrong, but they won't speak up. Um, So gutless, ignorant, and weak. Yeah, there's another one. Gutless, ignorant, and anyway, it doesn't matter. They're, They're just... That's what's destroying this country. The parliamentary system has been broken by parties. Yeah. What I like about Pauline, though, for example, is she may say something in public. Mm. I'll say, Pauline, I don't think you're right. Yeah. Oh, really? And the piercing eyes come on me. No, she doesn't know she's doing it. But, oh, she's, she's a, she's a, she's the energy nothing is so if not fierce. <laughs> oh, no, the eyes are just absolutely like a laser. She's just so focused. Yeah. Woof. Yeah. And you go, okay, Pauline, when you said this, you were wrong in this area. Why? Yeah. I'll explain it. And I mm. go through. And she says, mm. hell, you're right. Yeah. She'll get up in public and apologize. Yeah. And and then she gets criticized for flip-flopping. Yeah. <laughs> which is just amazing. It's, you know, are we not allowed to learn? Are we not allowed to actually, you know, say, hey, I was actually wrong about that, so now I understand that better? Like there's this, there's this really interesting sort of dynamic that goes on where once someone goes into public life that we feel like we have the right to freeze them. They're not allowed to change now. They're not allowed to learn anything now. They're not allowed to grow now, which is just obviously completely counterproductive. I'm getting a lot of questions as, I, as I'm going through. I'm now, I'm now driving. Uh, Dave, who was helping out before. Uh, is that Dave Pillow, by the way, in Brisbane? Yes. Yes, it is. Oh, yeah. I've got to say this. Um, go to his church and state Facebook page. He is on fire, that man. He yeah. is absolutely drilling the government on and yeah. all the politicians on this coronavirus um, exaggerations and inept yeah. management and gross inept governance. He yeah. is doing a phenomenal job. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I had the pleasure of being interviewed by him some time ago, and I've got a lot of time for him. And he reached out to me and said, look, can I can I help you in some way? And I said, well, um, it's very difficult when you've got thousands of comments dropping in and I'm trying to interview and chat with somebody. It's very difficult to to sort of do both at the same time. So he volunteered two hours of his time and has done a wonderful job up until now. But he unfortunately has another commitment now, and I'm now driving. So if I look like I'm distracted, I apologize. <laughs> I am listening, but I'm also reading uh, and trying to keep up because these comments are dropping in so fast across the different platforms where we're, we're streaming um, that it's actually very, very difficult for me to even keep up. How A lot of questions, though, are coming through, and I think it's a very valid question. What do we do? I've always tried to be very practical in all the content that I put out, the videos that I put out over the years. I don't want to just be pointing out a problem. I want to be identifying, even if it's not a great solution, what's the best solution I can find right now? What do we do to improve our situation from where we are right now? Well, let, let's talk about this in a practical sense. That's what you want. Now, when you asked me to come on onto the show and you then said, are there any other topics? And I said, I'd like to get into the UN. Yeah. But I said, let's make it real so that there are yep. things that affect people. And that's what I've tried to do. Not talk about yep. the big, big stuff for the UN, just how it affects everyday Australians, their food, yep. their property rights, yep. their yep. energy, um, family law. water, family law, et cetera, destroying their mm-hmm. kids. We've just talked about the gutless, incompetent, ignorant politicians. Mm. And so what we have to do is shake them up. Now, sometimes Paulie and I can do that, just two of us. We are actually making huge changes in the parliament, sometimes behind the scenes, but sometimes in public. 
So what we need is more people doing that. So what we need is people to to hold their MP accountable, hold their senators for their state accountable, their politicians accountable. We need people supporting these kinds of outlets from independent media, not the legacy media. I mean, look at Sky News. It's become a cheering squad for the COVID uh, vaccines. Look at the Australian newspaper. Is is the Australian newspaper the largest largest, uh, circulation in the country? I think it is, isn't it? I, I think nationwide, sure. because it is nationwide, whereas a lot of the other yeah. publications are focused on a specific state. Yeah. So if you look at the recent public uh, recent editions of uh, The Weekend Australian, they've had three and four page glossy lift outs that yeah. are just saying, get the vaccine, get the vaccine, get the vaccine, um, pumping the fear, pumping the, the, the revenue for, for the vaccine makers. Um, and so we've got the, the and then the ABC, well, we don't need to talk about that. Everyone watching this knows what's going on there. Um, and, and they're paying for it. We're paying the yes. ABC as taxpayers to fleece us for the globalists. Yeah. So it's absurd. Channel 9. $1.1 billion dollars a year, I believe. Yes. Um, as a propaganda but, unit. Correct. To take money out of your wallet and give it to some bastard overseas. Um, yeah. That's exactly what's going on. And, and so then we've also got Channel 9, which is bloody hopeless, uh, Channel 7, uh, they don't they don't talk about these things, no in-depth reporting other than sensationalist stuff. Uh, yep. And they usually go along with the fear the UN parades, so therefore they're driving that. Channel 9 become an apologist for the vaccine. So the legacy media is hopeless. We know that social media, I've been banned on YouTube for daring to mention um, a proven, safe, effective, affordable drug, medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, Facebook has removed Craig Kelly. Now, there's something really significant. These days oh. we communicate with email, telephone, post, and Facebook. If mm. you go to um, many members of parliament, their website that taxpayers pay for, their, their parliamentary website, you'll find yep. on there a Twitter icon and a Facebook icon. Click yep. on that and you can send a message, but you yep. can't do it to Craig. Craig no. is duly elected, but he's been banned off Facebook. Um, then you get George Christensen. I mean, this is an absolute disgrace. George yeah. said lockdowns are and, and, uh, doing more harm than good. Masks are not effective. And there was one other thing he said. Oh, that's right. We need to get these gutless politicians up and start being held accountable for for what they're doing on on COVID. He was censored by his own party, condemned. Yes. This this is is fundamental democracy. This is extraordinary. Let's let's do it. If if you don't mind, let's do a quick summary of where we're at in Australia right now. The Australian constitution is being ignored at will. Correct. Victorian... Um, Bill of Human Rights and Responsibilities is being ignored at will and had now even uh, judges in Victoria are agreeing that you have no rights at all if it's in if there's a health order of some sort that, that applies. They just reflexively side with that. We do not have, therefore, we do not have a functioning judicial system anymore because they're just reflexively siding with the government, at least in Victoria. We do not have a functioning parliament. In Victoria, parliament was just shut down for fear of a COVID transmission that might happen inside Parliament House. Uh, and so down here, we have some fantastic uh, members of the, I always get the houses mixed up in Victoria, but the House of Review, the the, the Senate, but we don't call it that here. Is that um, the Legislative Assembly or? I, I, it's, there's a Legislative Council and the Legislative Assembly. And every time I think I've got it right, I've got it wrong. So I'm not even going to try. Um, but David <laughs> Limbrick and, and Tim Quilty, and there are some other good ones as well, but I would particularly call out those two as just doing outstanding work in Victorian state politics. Um, 
where they had questions that they wanted to ask the government and they wanted to hold the government accountable. They got less than 30 seconds. Tim Quilty was speaking. They interrupted him. They shut him down and they shut down the entire parliament and the whole, the whole sitting of parliament was suspended. Everyone was sent home. We don't have a functioning parliament. Essentially, where we're at now is we have in Victoria, and I, I won't speak federally because I don't know it as well, but in Victoria, we have a premier and a handful of hand-picked people chosen by the premier who are now functioning as a dictatorship over the state. There is no judicial review. There is no legislative review. There is there is literally nothing but their opinion this week, which changes all the time. You know, what they think needs to be done changes all the time. With strong there connections no to the Communist Party of China. Yes. In Victoria, especially, Road. Yeah. in Victoria especially, very strong connections to, to the Communist Party, Party in China. So you have to ask yourself the question, number one, this continues for as long as they want it to. Those very same people that, are that now have all of the power are the ones deciding when their power gets handed back. And number two, there is no mechanism for actually... For, for, for stopping this, if the, if the judges have stopped doing their jobs, there is no longer a mechanism, a, a peaceful mechanism for actually stopping this. We are now entering extremely dangerous territory as a, as a country, and we've gotten there incredibly quickly. I, I can understand why people are bewildered and people think it's just a conspiracy theory and you're overreacting because it's hard to believe how quickly we got from where we were in 2019 to where we are now. Do you believe, and, and you know, I, I can probably guess your answer, and, and some people would say you've got a vested interest in, in your answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you believe that there is still an electoral pathway to fixing this problem? Does voting actually matter anymore? I agree with you that the Labor and Liberal Party are basically two different factions within the same party. It would be better if we just rolled them together into one party and they have their little factional battles internally, <laughs> right? That would be a more honest way to actually approach who they are in reality, right? They are they are two different arms of the. It's the Chinese Communist Party left wing and not so left wing. That's that's what we have. <laughs> is there an electoral pathway out of this? Yes, there is, um, and and there is hope. Uh, the negative side, or the the frustrating, or the uh, disappointing. What's the word? The worrying side is that I can be standing up at uh, how to vote booths, handing out how to vote cards, right? Um, that does make a big difference. It, it, it Potentially. It depends on where you are. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but the fact that it makes a big difference tells you voters are not informed when they go in there. But anyway, we, so, so um, but the number of people who rock up and go, oh, put in insert, insert an expletive, oh, hmm. bugger, we've got to vote. Not again. Yeah. Last time yeah. was three years ago. Um, oh, <laughs> what the hell? And then you go scrutineering afterwards and you see ballot papers with expletives written on them or, yeah. or a dick and a balls, you know, this yeah. kind of stuff going on. Yeah. Then on Monday, the same people are saying, oh, damn, we've got yeah. the Liberal Party in again or we've yeah, got the yeah, Labor yeah. Party Labor in again. Party. Can't yeah, we get rid yeah. of Palaszczuk? Can't we get rid of the Liberals? You know, yeah. and so the sovereigns in this country, well, let me, you know the answer to this question. Who are the only group of people that can change the constitution, the governing document for our, our, our yes, sir? Us. All of us. Yeah. You're the sovereign of this country. We are the sovereigns of this country. And so, but we don't exercise that because we don't inform ourselves when we vote with the majority of people. And then we complain with government. Why is it that go around the world? And, and as Churchill said, democracy is not perfect, but it's the best we've got, something like that. 
We go uh, around the I world. I believe what he said. It's, it's a great quote. It's the worst form of government ever devised by man, with the exception of all of the others. Yeah, which <laughs> is which I think you. sums it up brilliantly. Yeah, um, but we can in Australia. You can see it. We criticise our politicians, and rightly so. I want to make that yeah. very clear. Rightly yeah. so. Yeah, it's the system driving it. So why the hell do you turn around and allow them to do whatever they want to do? And why the hell don't you hold them accountable for destroying your lives with regulations coming from overseas? Why yeah. the hell do you allow this? So in the short term, what we need to do is speak to is speak by preferably in person in their office, visit their office and let them know you're, you're not happy. Write yeah. to them, uh, telephone them, email them. Um, that's about as much as you can do. Talk with your friends. Make sure that other people know, because I can, I can remember Joe Bielke-Peterson. I thought he was bloody good in Queensland, and I was working every six months. I deliberately changed my job to go around and get experience around the country. And I was in three different areas in New South Wales, and yeah. I'd go home to Queensland for um, a couple of weeks between jobs and come back down and work for the next six months. Yep. And I'd come into, into New South Wales, and we'd be out with the mates or having a party or whatever, and, and people would get stuck into me for being a Queenslander supporting Joe, you know? <laughs> and and I'd stick up for him, and then um, and then the rest of the night, people would come up and say, "Wish we had him down here," mm. you know. Yeah. And so, yeah. if they just sto stood up and spoke up, then people would start to realise people yeah. value what Joe did. He balanced budgets, he cut taxes, he built infrastructure, he yeah. got things moving properly, um, mm. he got the country developed, the the, in, mm. the Bowen Basin took off. So these are the kinds of things. And if someone calls you a denier, just put the facts back at them. The only yeah. reason they're calling you a denier is they can't put the facts. So it's basically yeah. a matter of voters have got to be informed and exercise their rights as citizens because every speech, I don't know if you know this or not, but every speech in the Senate, apart from a two-minute speech, every speech in the Senate, I start with the words, as a servant to the people of Queensland and Australia. That's yeah, to remind yeah. me. Yeah. That's to remind me, but it's also yeah. to send a message to the other politicians. When I first did that in, in the Parliament back in 2016, I was laughed at. Yeah, wow. Now they understand it and they don't criticise me for it and some yeah. people recognise what's going on. So yeah. we've got to change the, the politicians from being dictators to being yeah. servants. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with being a servant. It's no. not servile, it's actually service. Yeah. So we have got to get that back and the only way you can get that back is by having the masters of the joint tell the bloody servants what they want and hold yeah. them accountable. Ultimately, yeah. you can kick them out, and that's what needs to happen. Yeah. And there is another There's... bit of hope. There is another bit of hope too. Excuse me for cutting in. Yep. Someone, I think it might have been John Howard, said a few years ago, a, couple, a few decades ago, 45% of the people voted Labor, 45% voted Liberal National. 10% yep. swung. Yep. Sometime later it was 40-40, 20% swung. Yeah, wow. Now it's getting around 35-35. Wow. 30% of swinging. In yeah. Queensland at the last federal election, the Labor Party in the Senate got 26% of the vote, one quarter. If we wow. get the last, um, the, last hunt, the last federal election, the One Nation Party came from nowhere and almost won the seat of Hunter. If preferences had been slightly mm. different, we would have mm. had a One Nation member in the lower house. That yeah, is happening amazing. with minor parties. So yeah. we yeah. need to get to the point where we have the Liberal and Labor combined with only 49%. Yeah. And then the majority will hopefully go to one of the miners. And yeah. then when we get the miners, see, then the miners can say, okay, we don't run the government, but if you want something, make sure it meets these criteria, which is serving the country. Yeah.
This is this is my ultimate hope now. We've got an, a federal election. I think they're expecting it somewhere between March and May next year sometime. I, I, I'm not yeah. sure exactly, but something like that. We have a Victorian state election late next year. My hope now is a hung parliament. My hope now is that in the lower house, neither of the major parties can actually form government. Um, and and they have to negotiate with some lower house crossbenchers in order to actually form government. And if those lower house crossbenchers are the right people, then potentially they can actually get something done. In the upper house, I think it's a bit more tricky. And, and I, I was going to save this conversation until after we were done, and I was going to pick your brain a little bit. <laughs> um, but I think given the way this has gone and given the responses and the questions I'm seeing uh, coming up, and I've, I've almost got to stop looking at, at that because I, I just want to focus in on, on this chat with, with you. I have been asked regularly over the 12 years, over the journey since I sort of started TOFA and, and started making videos and so forth, I've been asked more times than I can remember to run for politics or to, you know, and most of it's just a person going, hey, you should run for politics. Yeah, okay, that's nice. Um, but occasionally I get approached by an actual political party and I've been approached by, not certainly not all, there are some that know I'm not their, not their type, but I've been approached by a, a range of political parties over the years and asked to run. And I've always given the same kind of glib response, which I know is a cop out on the one hand, but but it's gotten me out of having to having to deal with the question, which is um, my answer has always been uh, no, thank you. I want to do something useful with my life, which rules out politics. Um, so that's always been kind of my my answer to anyone. You know, my passion is business, and I'm, I've been chipping away and working away at, at developing some businesses over you know the last number of years and running into red tape and bureaucracy and everything else. Anyway, that's another story that my followers know. I have a five year journey with drive go karting so far. Uh, anyway, that's another story. So the question has come up again, and I'm actually thinking about it the most seriously that I have ever thought about it before. Of should I actually throw my head in the ring? And, and what would that look like? And what does that mean? And what are the implications for that? So this, is a pri this was going to be a private chat that I wanted to have with you afterwards. But if you'll allow me, I want to pick your brain sure. now and get a little bit personal about what your experience as a senator. Now, you're federal. I don't know whether I'd be federal or state. I don't know whether I'd be upper or lower house. I, you know, not all, none of that is answered at this point in time. It's purely, it's purely a... a I think I actually need to come up with a proper answer. And the answer may be no, but I actually need to come up with a proper answer to this question this time around of whether I should throw my head in the ring and actually try and do something in the, in the political sphere. So can you tell me a little bit about the journey of you from when you were not a senator to becoming a senator? The, the oh, campaign. the two of them. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but the process of that what it is like in public life. I mean, yes, to a certain degree, I have a, a tiny little public profile, but it's nothing like what, what a, an actual politician has. And it's people don't have the same sense of claim on me. You know, if someone starts mouthing off at me, I can tell them to piss off because, you know, what do I owe them? I owe them nothing. But as a, as a representative of the people, it's a very different thing. It's, you know, and I would take that very, very seriously that I am their servant and I am there to represent mm -hmm. I know them. You so it's, it's a very, very different thing. So if, if I may, and I don't know, it's a, it's a little bit personal and I, and I didn't brief you beforehand because I thought this was going to be a private that's, chat that's afterwards, fine. but could you tell me a bit about that journey and what it is actually like and, and tell me a bit about the difference that you believe you've actually been able to make? Because one of my big questions is, sure, I could run. I could even potentially get elected, maybe, although it's a long shot, but then what? Like, what difference can you actually make in the system? Well, I believe Pauline and I are changing the parliament for the better in many, many ways. Um, people 
need to understand that the government is elected to govern. Now, governance, um, governance, I think, has three aspects. First of all, it's trusteeship for the values of the entity, whether it be a company or a country, right? Yeah. You'd be very good at that. Number two is governance, thinking about the future of the country for the people mm. or the company that you're governing, the, mm -hmm. for, the, for the people who are not yet born. And the third one is stewardship of the resources. That's basic management. Now, the yep. government has to do all of those three things. Yep. The government at the moment under this parliament, and when I say this parliament, I mean the last few decades, sure. is abysmal. Yes. So I believe Agreed. you'd be strong in all three because you've got a very good brain for numbers. You've got a very good brain for practicalities. You can see through things quickly. You've got a very good bullshit detector. Um, and I think that that makes you very good. You're very good on your feet. You're very, uh, very effective speaker. You're engaging. You're highly intelligent. I can't see a single thing wrong. There's only one thing. I'm guessing you're a dedicated family man. I am, yes. So the Senate would not be the place for you because it involves a lot of time away from family okay. because your constituency is the whole of Victoria. Right. right. Okay, so you've got to get around the whole of that state to do your job properly. So yeah. when you're not in – where do you live? You live near Melbourne, don't you? I, I live in the southeast of Melbourne, yeah. Okay. So Parliament is in Melbourne. So that's not a bit – that's not difficult for you. That's not a big deal. No. Yeah. Okay. That, that's, that's good. Um, so so that's not so bad, the state state uh, upper house or the state lower house. But if you're in the lower house federally, then you're looking after your area, yep. which is not too hard to get around, especially in Victoria, high population. It's a lot harder to, get, to actually get elected, though, in the lower house. Yes, it is. Um, yep. And that's the beauty of the Senate. The Senate um, is proportional representation, which means yep. that if if a, a person or a party gets, you know, the quota, 7%, they're in. Yeah. So whereas in the in the lower house, you need at least 50% after preferences. Yep. That, that's assuming so, I'd be the number one candidate, and I don't even know who I yep. would run with or, or what that would even look like. But if I was the number one candidate, then, yes, yeah, 7%, and, and at that point you've got a, a Senate seat. Right. I, I've never been political and I'm still not political in, in the sense, um, neither is Pauline in many, way, many ways, but she's arguably the best politician in the country um, because of that. She knows how to be political um, and she'll keep her powder dry at times, Yeah, but she doesn't manipulate. She just yeah. works her way through things. That's hard to explain. Yeah. I hope I've explained that to you, but... Um, the government is elected to govern. People say, you vote with the Liberal Party too often. Well, hang on, hang yeah. on, hang on. Just a minute here. First yeah. of all, the government is elected to govern. So many yeah. of the things that the government puts on its bills are just, just allocation of resources. It's managing the country. Yeah. Labor Party votes for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, the dopey Greens sometimes don't to send a signal. But yeah. That's one thing. So then sometimes the government floats with us a piece of legislation. We say, that's rubbish. We're not going to yeah. support that at all. And because yeah. we've got two people, they need three on their yeah. side. So we're a significant yeah. component of that. So they say, don't bring that into the parliament. So we've scotched yeah. that, but that's yeah. never taken on our, on our tally. Yeah. We've the it, ones who've knocked gone it out. before it even came to a vote. Yeah. So we, yeah. we've protected the country from that and we voted against the Liberals on that, but it's never recorded as a vote. Cash ban, yeah. for example, my office destroyed that. Yeah, yeah, okay. The, um, then the next piece of legislation they might bring up says, um, and they come to us and they say, what do you think of this? Well, we don't like this, this, and this. We put up an argument. They say, geez, you're making sense. Okay, we'll go back. Yeah. And this government, by the way, is atrocious. The yeah. only thing good about this government is the Labor Party is even worse. 
So they're hopeless. Um, so, so, so that doesn't, so that comes back modified before it enters the parliament. And then we yeah. say, yeah, we can vote that because we, yeah. we've already torn it apart. Other, other pieces of legislation come in and um, we're not happy with them or we, we work out at the last minute that there's something wrong with it. So we move an amendment or sometimes we say to the government, you get off your ass and do the bloody work. You, you're the one yeah. putting this forward. You yeah. amend it. And yeah, then we'll, we'll pass it. the amendment and then we'll vote for it. So that's another tick for us that we've voted with the government. Yeah. And then another one would be a good piece of legislation comes up. It's urgently needed or it's well needed. We vote for it. Yeah. And sometimes the Labor Party does too. So you can yeah. see that we're not voting with the Liberals all the time, but yeah. people perceive that because the Labor Party tells those lies because yeah. they know we're stealing their voters because the, the Workers' Party is no longer the Labor Party. It's, it's, it's the One Nation Party. Yeah. Uh, the Bush is no longer the Nationals because they know no. water policy, no. property rights, energy. No. These things are affecting the Bush. So what happens is we've got a lot of clout. Now, I believe that you would have a lot of clout because you're so strongly focused on data and practicalities. So that's there's picking my brain. I haven't gone into it in depth, but there, there, sure. there's where you have it. Tell me a little bit about the impact on on your life. Obviously, when you're as soon as you're in public life, as soon as you're a public servant, and particularly a, an elected public servant, a politician, uh, the public have a certain amount of rightful claim over your time and attention. They want to bring something to your attention. If they're in your electorate, then that's that's all well and good. Um, there, it is not possible to not be hated by somebody as a politician. Now, I'm quite used to being hated. That's I'm I'm, I'm quite comfortable <laughs> with that. I I. I Another anecdote, uh, when I um, I had someone helping me with web development and things like that when I released the 50 to 1 project, um, and I released the 50 to 1 project, and I got such a barrage of abuse, right? No one quite crossed the threshold into a death threat, but there were plenty of death wishes and and other similar things, uh, to the point that I, my phone rings, and it was my web guy, and I picked it up, and I said, oh, hey, and he just, the first thing he said to me was, are you okay? I said, yeah, why? Said, oh, have you been reading your emails? Yeah, why? <laughs> you know, he sort of saw what was in there. You know, the stuff that came through after I spoke at an anti-lockdown protest on Anzac Day of 2020. I mean, really, really savage stuff. So I'm pretty comfortable. I'm pretty comfortable being hated. I don't have a massive issue with that. But I have the privilege at the moment of being being comfortable with being hated by people that have no claim on me. What's your experience and how do you maintain sanity and how do you maintain work-life balance and and, and your own equilibrium, how do you stay in touch with the real world when there is a, a an endless demand on your time? There's, there's, there's always somebody else wanting your time and attention and focus. You're, so, you're in this bubble, the political bubble. How do you stay in touch with the real world and not get caught up in that Canberra bubble in the case of a federal politician? Well, the first thing is it might shock a lot of people to hear this, but I don't read the newspapers and I don't watch TV. Yeah. That, that's the first thing because it's all bullshit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't have much time for any other media, even the good stuff like yourself. Yeah. Um, I know several yeah, very, very fair good enough. channels. I just don't do it. Um, before getting into politics, I was, um, and I still am, very high standards in terms of my own work. And yeah. I'd make, I'd be fussy with the attention to detail, not micromanaging. I yeah. love letting yeah. people get on with their, their work, but I put a lot of attention to detail um, and get the facts. You can't, you, while you have to do that in politics, I believe, to do a good job, I could work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 mm. weeks a year, and still not get everything done. Yeah. So I have to say, sorry, if you saw my desk now, it's a mess. 
And every every couple of days, I just clean it out. And every yeah. few months, I just tip things out that I would have liked to have done, but I couldn't. Yeah. So I accept that in, in, in me right now. I have to focus on the really critical things. And and you, you'd have the discipline to do this, no doubt. The other thing is um, I know that what you think of me is none of my business. Sure. So what you say of me doesn't bother me. Now, the reality is that someone like you, for whom I've got enormous respect, if you said something mm. and you called me a dickhead, I mm. would probably be a little hurt. I might wince in the gut, but then I'd say, well, hang on, hang on. I'm not a dickhead. No. Um, I would then come to you. I know you wouldn't say that anyway, but um, uh, you'd, you'd come at me with facts and strong argument, and I'd say, geez, he's got a point there. Okay, yeah. I've learned something, so I'm better off. So I can accept that. Um, we had uh, <laughs> death threats when I first entered Parliament, and one of my staff came to me, and, and she was really worried, very conscientious lady. And she's very, very good. She came to me and said, we just had a death threat. And I said, tell him to get to the end of the queue. And then, then uh, well, that's right. The, and the journalists are trying to intimidate. So when I first mm. became a senator, James Ashby came and got me and said, mate, you're, you've just been elected, so let's go to the park and we'll call a press conference. And so we had yeah. all these microphones shoved in my face. My wife and son were with me. Yeah. Their daughter wasn't, but and all the journalists were arrayed. There must have been about fifteen journalists, twenty journalists yeah. arrayed in the yeah. big U. You know, about yeah. ten meters away. Just wanting to catch you out. Um, and 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 they start with the usual, uh, oh, how many kids you got? Where have you been? What are you doing? You know, blah blah blah. And they're trying to lull you into a false sense of confidence. And some of them are just genuine, decent people. And yeah. I noticed yeah. over on my right, there was one guy moving away from the others, just inch by inch. He's just and he's, yeah. he's, he's separated, right? And he got his turn and he said, in a tone that reflected what I'm about to say, but the words didn't. The words were quite sensible, but the tone was, you're that bloody lunatic that thinks global warming is a giant conspiracy for getting global yeah. governance. You're an idiot, yeah. you know? Yeah. And and I looked at him and a lot of politicians go, oh, no, 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 Topher, I didn't really yeah, mean right. that. I didn't mean that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This they is what I really away, mean. Which is the worst yeah. possible thing you can do. <laughs> it encourages them. So you the minute you back down. <laughs> so I said to him, yeah, that's right. Next question. And yeah. he was. <laughs> this is, right, I, I um, want to pause on this because I'm sorry. Can I pause on this? Because this yeah, is such sure. an important lesson, whether you're in politics, whether you're in business, whether you're in whatever. When the mob come for you, if you give them an inch, they will own you for the rest of your life. You give Correct. them nothing. You double Correct. down if that's advantageous to you at the time. But mostly, yes, you just swat it aside exactly like that. Yeah, yeah. okay, fine. That's your opinion. And, yep, okay, whatever. Move and, on. And next next question. You exactly never... That, uh, go on. Oh, a, media... say, you don't negotiate with terrorists. No. <laughs> and you, you have to regard these people effectively as terrorists. There is nothing you can do or say that will make them like you. Therefore, don't try. No, no. You know, and, and, and there was someone, well, I've forgotten his name. Uh, he's known to be a, a pretty um, biased, jaundiced uh, reporter. I've forgotten his name. How could I forget it? But see there, it, it, I've yeah. just forgotten his yeah. name. Because clearly, you, you're deeply scarred by what he said. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so he asked me uh, a question. And uh, when I was walking in the corridors upstairs and there was a mob around, mob of reporters around me, mm. and he asked me this question, I turned around, said, I'm not answering your question yeah. because you lie. Yeah. And everyone went, oh. And so <laughs> someone came around the front and said, 
can I ask his question for him? No, I can't. No, you're not going to ask him because he tells lies and I'm not going to answer yeah. his question, you know? Yeah. I mean, Trump did a marvellous job with the media. Um, our media advisor, when she was first appointed, uh, didn't have much experience in the media, but what she does, she's very strong in character mm. and she'll, um, she's very personable to the media. So some of the dickheads that we refuse to have anything to do with, she says, Malcolm, yeah. these people are just trying to earn a living. They're a bit off the wrong track. Let's, yeah. And now we're getting decent articles off the same people. Yeah, right. So there, there are some, some people like that. But she, she was taken up to be introduced um, by James Ashby to the, to the media uh, journalists upstairs. And she went into the ABC, which has got a huge office and a number of journalists. Yeah. And, uh, and, and they were all having a chat with this milling around her. And, um, and uh, she said, uh, someone said, you know, would you like to say something? And uh, she said, yeah, I will. Um, you'll find that my senator is very calm believes in data, mm. uses it in an argument, and you won't get him into a fight. <laughs> they just looked at her and said, we know that. <laughs> so, you know, um, we, we don't go looking for the media. And the ABC knows it's tried several times to get me into a, into a shit fight. It's tried several yep. times to try and embarrass me. And yep. I don't fall for their tricks. So they don't yep. come near me now. Sky yep. News doesn't come near me because they're pushing the virus. And, and yep. so they also know that I've got strong arguments against the Liberal Party. So they won't, they yep. won't come near me. Yep. Um, most of the journalists won't if they're, because they, they can't make me out as a bullshitter. They can't make me out as a, as a lunatic because yep. I just look at them and give them the facts and they're, they're lost. Yep. So, you know, you would be dynamite in politics. Yeah, it's a question of whether that's the direction we want to go. I mean, as a family, yeah. and I've, I've shared this with my viewers many times before, we are putting in place a plan B. I, as I look at the direction Australia is going in, and this has been my view now for, for a little bit over 10 years, uh, and initially on the economic argument, when you look at how many welfare-dependent families there are, it's impossible to actually wind back welfare now it's just for the sheer number of voters that are dependent on welfare. I, I just can't see it happening. And so purely on the economic argument, um, we're now in a spiral that we can't get out of. Now, that doesn't, I don't know when that spiral ends, but but it, it, it it's it's very hard to be optimistic about the future of Australia when when we're in what I believe is an inescapable um, spiral from just from an economic point of view. And I, I can see you want to respond to that. So I'll, I'll let you in just a second, but let me let me finish the- I'm just the thinking point. about it. Um, yeah, I'm weighing it up. I'm not necessarily responding. Okay. I'm just so, thinking about so it. About eight years ago, I did a video called The um, Forbidden History of Terrible Taxes. And I ran through and I, I calculated in detail the average amount of tax that a median salary earner earns in Australia. Uh, sorry, a median salary earner pays in Australia. And once you add it all up, there's obviously, there's the obvious one, there's income tax, but then there's also the GST that they then pay whenever they buy something. Plus there's the fuel excise and there's various other excises on other things that, that people buy. Plus there's various other costs of government from rates to uh, your registration costs and various other things. And I ran the numbers and it adds up to more than 50%. So well, more, then, well more than 50%, Toby. Yeah, well more. Back then, the, the median Australian income earner was, was earning about $76,000 a year back then. Um, and they were paying more than half of that in, in the cost of government. This is what they were buying. Most people think the most expensive thing they buy is their house. It's not. It's actually their government. Um, and, and so for me, there's a very strong drive to want to move somewhere where I'm paying a little bit less and maybe getting a little bit more value back in return because I can't say I'm getting a lot for my money at the moment. Um, and, and so we've been, we've been, particularly in the last four years, we've been working actively on a strategy and in the last 18 months, that's, you know, I thought I had another 10 years before we were going to be in a situation like what we're in right now. This has caught me off guard, even though I would argue I'm probably more aware than most, this has still caught me off guard. 
and, and all of a sudden the plans that I had for 10 years time, uh, you know, we're looking at having to bring those forward. Now, we don't have our second passports yet and other things that could make complications if I went into federal politics. State politics is a little bit different. Um, but we're, we're putting in place a number of a, a number of things so that if we wanted to get out of Australia and potentially never come back, we we ought to be able to do that somewhere around about the middle of next year. We should, as a family, be in a position where we can do that sometime around about the middle of next year. And that's what we've been working towards as a backup plan. We haven't booked tickets. We're not planning on leaving Australia, but to have the option. And there's a very specific story behind that to do with my time in Venezuela and a, a chat that I had with an elderly gentleman there who saw socialism coming and he knew how destructive it was going to be uh, and he fought it and he tried to stop Hugo Chavez from being elected and he failed and I had a conversation with him in a jazz bar in Caracas when I was there with my wife in 2015 and he shared with me the pain of now as an old man watching his son and his, his son's wife and now his grandson living in a country where they had no hope, they had no opportunity, they couldn't earn a living, they couldn't even feed themselves. He's watching his grandson not able to get medical care for basic stuff, uh, suffering the, the symptoms of malnutrition and these sorts of things. And the look in his eyes as he admitted to me, as he confessed almost to me that he had failed his family because he, did, he never made a plan B. He saw it coming. He tried to stop it, but he never made a plan B. And now his family have to live with the consequences of that. And ever since that, five years ago, or six years ago now, I guess, I've been resolved that I will never be that man. And so that's been the path that I've been on with my family. And it takes time. You've got, to, you've got to figure out how you're going to earn a living from, you know, without having to be in a particular country. You've got to figure out how you're going to live, where you're going to live, what that's going to look like, how you're going to raise your kids, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. There's a, there's a huge amount to it. But we've been on that path for years. So if I were to turn around and go into politics, this is a complete reversal mm. of everything that I and my family have been working towards for, for a couple of years now. And we're committing, obviously, to stay in Australia for at least that long, whatever, the you know, lower house, I think it's three or four years, depending if it's state or federal. Upper house is usually six years, I think. Um, you know, it, it would be a radical change. And my default position is no. My default position is to give the same answer as I've given every other time I've been asked, which is lots, is to say, no, that's not who I am. It's not what I want to do. Even if I'm out of Australia, I can continue to fight. I can continue to, to raise issues. I can continue. I could be doing this from any country mm -hmm. in the world right now. Uh, it wouldn't actually necessarily reduce my ability to stand up for what's right uh, from by being outside of Australia. And it would be, I think, much better for my family. But I just have this, I have this uh, nagging, you know, my dad used to say, if the same question keeps coming up over and over again and you keep answering it the same way, but it keeps coming back, maybe you need to try answering it a different way. Maybe you need to try the other answer. And I guess that's where I'm at now. And I'm, for the first time, I'm really thinking through what would that mean? What would that look like? Who Am I okay with what that does to my family, what that does to our plans and what we've set in motion for, for a number of years now? And could I even make a difference? I, th I think this. I think ultimately this is probably the crux of it. What are the odds that me being in that particular spot is actually going to make a meaningful difference in the world, or in Australia, or in Victoria? So maybe, maybe I'd, I'd appreciate it if you could share a little bit more with me. You, you've 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 mentioned a few along the way. As a senator, as a federal senator, because obviously you can't speak to state and, you, and not necessarily the lower house. What are the mechanisms by which you're making a difference where you hopefully are able to look at it and say, yes, that was worth the years of my life that I spent doing that? What, what, what is that? There are some, some specific 
uh, legislation that we've either introduced or modified or stopped that that have have really been beneficial to the country uh, yeah. and the future in particular. The other thing is my very first speech in the Senate, um, my first speech, as it's called, it's not called a maiden speech, it's called a first speech. Yeah. And people are supposed to be nice, not not right. bullshitting, but but yeah. not antagonistic, yeah. not attacking. Professional and I, at I the very that. least. Now, I despise the Greens. Um, yeah. Some of them are... Um, they're, they're they're genuinely nice people, but they're bent. They 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 yeah. just just don't use data. Yeah. Um, they're ideologically driven. They're really damaging. They're the most destructive force in the country. I've got three most destructive. The most mm. destructive force in the country, the political force in the country, is the Australian Greens. Okay. The most destructive building in the country, referring to a group of people, is the mm. federal Parliament House. Yep. Without a doubt. The most destructive system in the country is the Australian taxation system. And I'd like to come yeah. back and talk about that. Okay. So in my first speech, I covered a number of topics and then I talked about anti-human behaviour. And I looked mm. at the Greens as I said that. Mm. And people knew what I was doing, mm. um, but, you know, I respected the the, the um, sense of the Senate. Yeah. Every straight away after that, it was open slather on the Greens. I called them out because at their core, they are anti-human. I can make a very good argument for that, very persuasive argument. Yeah. They're anti-human. Yep. I, I agree, 100%. Uh, yeah, at, at their core. Um, now, when I spoke in the Senate, the Greens sat down the bottom of the Senate and then the U part, the bottom of the U. Yep. Yep. And they sat there and they looked out over everyone. And, and I would tear into the Greens and expose yep. their policies anti-human, their behaviour. Um, and I'd walk outside and the National Party and the Liberal Party would pat me on the back and say, good on you, mate. And I'd say, well, why aren't you doing it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right? And not long after that, some of the better Liberal National people started speaking about the Greens. Yeah, yeah. They believed you, it, but they didn't say You opened that it. door. Right. And there are yep. so many things like that that we, we've done. Now, the cash ban bill, um, that was hideous. And yeah, we got agreed. straight onto that before it even hit the House. We started talking to the Labor Party um, and and got them to see what we could see in it. Uh, we started talking to the crossbenchers. No one was aware of it. So when the Labor Party brought it in, they uh, – sorry, when the Liberal Party brought it in, Liberal Nationals brought it in to ban cash, mm. um, the Labor Party passed it in the lower house. Yeah. We were shocked. And then they brought it to the Senate – and the Labor Party consigned it to committee. Okay. So we got that. And then we, we ramped up um, our, our um, opposition to it. We got all the crossbench opposed to it. We then found uh, some Victorians, I um, can't remember his name, but I, I heard about him. He's a Liberal Party member. He was very active in the branch, one of particular branches. And so I contacted him and said, we'll, we'll back you on it, you know, and he stirred things up in, this, in, your, in your state of Victoria. Yeah. And that saw the, taught the Liberal Party that they were opposing, there were a lot of internal opposition. Yeah. So as a result of that, we eventually moved a motion saying remove it from the books, and it was removed from the books. Yeah. So okay. we also got, um, we, there was a bail-in legislation, um, I can explain yeah. that if people need, bail-in legislation that was passed in 2018 by the Liberal and Labor Party. Yep. Bail-in legislation, the bailout is where the government takes taxpayer money and gives it to a company and bails them out of problems, financial problems, banks. Yep. Bail-in yep. is where 
the financial institution takes the depositor's money, your cash, mm. converts it to shares, which are basically useless, worthless, mm -hmm. because they're about to collapse. Yeah, and you don't get anything apart from a yeah. worthless share certificate. And we've seen that happen around the world. That's yeah. this isn't this isn't some crazy conspiracy theory. This is no. this has happened in practice in other countries around the world. And get this: the Treasury came to us and said, "This is rubbish. That's not what would happen." We explained it to them, and they went, "Oh, yeah. Oh, the Treasury. Yeah." So now the Treasury then admitted that there is an issue, and that they need to do something about that. Now, I think they're just bullshitting me, but that particular person we had got a lot of respect for in the treasury. He's no longer there. He yeah, wasn't sacked okay. because of that. I don't think so. But, but the point is that we can get people to think and to really question things. And it's so easy being beside Pauline. When, when she first came to me, she said, I'd like you to stand on the Senate ticket with me in Queensland because I need someone who will say what he thinks on the floor of parliament beside me. Yep. Yep. When I got to parliament, I saw what she meant. Because they, they don't say what they they don't say what they yeah. think, so yeah. um, so it's wonderful because you just let it rip, you know. Uh, yeah. You treat people with respect, so sure. so um, yeah. I think you, we can make a difference that way in the way we conduct ourselves. I don't yell out on the Senate floor. Never have, never yeah. have. Yeah, because that's treating the people of Australia with disrespect and with contempt. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, it's a yeah. rabble. Uh, yeah. Pauline sometimes when she gets really angry. Um, she's yelled out, but not abusively, not, um, uh, what's the word? Yeah. You know what I'm getting at? Not derogatorily. She just says that's yeah, yeah. rubbish. Yeah. So, yeah. um, so the way we conduct ourselves, the government comes to us and they know that they'll get a fair hearing. They know, and they've yeah. said this to other people, that one nation mob is a really good mob to work with. They won't give yeah. you what you want sometimes, but they'll tell yeah. you bugger off. Yeah. We're not doing <laughs> they'll this. Tell they'll you tell why. you why. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we'll be, and, and staff, we're told uh, independently from third parties that bureaucrats like coming to our office. They know that Pauline will put the laser eyes through them and they tr yeah. tremble literally. <laughs> yeah. But, it, but they know that they'll get a fair hearing. And sometimes the government gives us um, information. We go, ooh, we didn't think of that. Let us yeah. think about it. And then we'll say, yeah. Well, let us think about it, and then we'll say, you know, we're coming around to your point of view, but the last minute someone else might give us information, and we say, no, can't do it. And they were yeah. expecting us to, and yeah. with only a few exceptions, they know that we were honest on both counts. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and You were once, saying what you were they, at the time. Exactly, and, and we didn't yeah. make any commitments. So, uh, twice there was a serious bust-up with the government because – they genuinely thought we were going to vote for a bill and we committed to it. We, we didn't. And we, I showed them that later and they came to realise that. They were yeah. very disappointed. But that's just human interactions, you know, that's, that's yeah. natural. Yeah. So no, yeah. by being yeah. honest and strong and committed and consistent, you can get somewhere. Hmm. Well, look, I've got a lot to think about in terms of what's coming up in the next little while. Um, and unfortunately, with an election only, what, you know, end of Q1 or, or mid Q2 next year, it's a decision that needs to be made fairly quickly. So I've, I've got my work cut out to me, cut out for me to, um, to actually just think through. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for my family? I mean, you know, on the one hand, yes, I, I do want to see. I love Australia. The more I travel, mm. the more I like Australia. Like Australia is a brilliant place. It is so so good. Um, but at the same time, I'm very concerned about the trajectory that we're on, and I'm very concerned. Yeah, you know, it's same as this chap that I saw in Venezuela. That was such an influential moment in my life. 
you know, it didn't matter how switched on he was or how much he recognized what was going on. If 50% plus one of the people were going to vote themselves into slavery, then they were all going into slavery. You know? mm-hmm. And so, so there's this really big question in my mind of, of, have we passed the point of no return? Have we not? My loyalty and my obligation, first and foremost, is to my own family. That's, yes. that, that's yeah, where my loyalty be. and my obligation lies, first and foremost. And to find myself sitting here going, sure, do I give years of my life and put off all of those plans for a really remote chance of actually turning this thing around? Or do I just do what we've been planning and do what's best for my family? Uh, that's a much bigger question than I can answer here in conversation with you. But I do appreciate the insights that you've given and and the thoughts that you've given. Um, the fact that you are the fact that you are in that rough and tumble, you're in that world, and even so, you're able to see change that you've made. You're able to see progress because that's my biggest concern: is that I get in there into that rough and tumble, into that world, and go, "I'm a crossbench senator." I have no sway. I have no say. There's nothing that I can actually do to change anything. I'm basically warming a chair and and taking a salary for X number of years. That's my biggest fear. No, you, you, you'll never do that, I can tell. The other thing you, you won't do is you won't turn into what some of the senators do, and which is become a marketing expert, just putting on a front. You'll, yeah. you'll never do that. That's, that's not Topher's nature. You, you won't ever do those two things. Look, I'm I'm not going to be able to stop myself. Um, the the one thing I can guarantee is that my time in politics would be very entertaining for everybody else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one thing I could definitely guarantee. Um, however, to is it worth it? And that's a question that unfortunately I've only got a month or so to answer because if I'm going to take a run, I've got to I've got to get legs on the machine now. Yeah, that's um, right. You know, like, like I'm already late. I'm already late. I don't have enough time to put it all together and actually have a proper run, uh, even if I decided that I was going to. So it's it's a decision that needs to be made in the next little while. And like I said, I I wasn't planning to publicly actually make everyone aware that this was even going on. But with all the comments that I was seeing and and the conversation that we've had, I decided to have this conversation at the end of the stream rather than than privately afterwards. But I do appreciate your thoughts. Uh, and your input that is that is food for thought without any question yeah, at all. And, and anytime if you want to call and discuss uh, you know I'm, I'm certainly there we don't talk very often but uh, no. I always welcome your your chats well, because they're you. straight I, um, yeah, I did you want to talk it. about tax at all because I've got a look, couple of figures that might interest you look there there is a lot that we can talk about I'm mindful that we're hitting the two hour yeah. and 53 minute mark now wow. um, but I think what we need to do is probably have you back on in a couple of months um, and let's talk and- about tax I'd love to do that I look. That is, it's such a big issue. Uh, the tax churn that's going on and the way this country is going in that regard is, even if all this COVID stuff was able to be put to one side and we just say, you know what, it all works out happily in the end. We all go back to living like 2019, fine. Even if we assume that, what's happening with tax and welfare in this country is, to, to my mind, I can't see how we get ourselves out of this particular spiral that we're in. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. You've got deeper insight than I do because of where you, where you are. Uh, so how about we make a plan that in another couple of months, we're yep. going to get you back on. We're going to have another slow chat. Uh, we've covered all of what we've covered already. There's no need to recover it necessarily, except maybe to, to cover whatever's changed in the meantime. Uh, and then we can get stuck into some new things. And tax would certainly be high on my list that I'd love to talk about. And, and it's, it's significant, Topher, because um, tax affects the family uh, in, yes. in the sense that when I grew up, I had 
one parent at home with me and, and, and my sister and brother. Um, these days, that's not a choice. Now, yeah. if it, it doesn't matter who stays home, but I think one parent should stay home. But you should have the choice. Yeah. And these days, yeah. there's no choice. Both are forced to work. That's wrong. Okay. I'm being told off by my viewers. They want you to talk tax now. I'm, <laughs> I'm being told in no uncertain terms. There's plenty of comments coming through. They're here uh, rather now than later. Oops, that one there. Um, talk about tax. There's literally like comments just pouring in. Please talk about tax. So you know what? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start my career as a vacillating politician <laughs> with a finger to the wind. Oh, the people want me to talk about tax. So let's talk about tax. You no, the when floor. the people want you to talk about it, that's fine. You're, you you're serving the people. Yeah. Okay. So let's look at a couple of figures. Um, the first figure comes from the Deputy uh, Commissioner of Taxation, uh, Jim Kalali. He's retired about late 2015, 2016. I then met him in person because of a very good friend of mine who's very well read on this issue. Um, and, and I said, well, John, let's go down and meet him. He just retired from Canberra. So yeah. we met him. Um, in 1996 and 2010, Jim Kalali said, and it was quoted in, in newspapers, saying that 90% of Australia's large companies are foreign-owned and since 1953 have paid little or no tax, company tax. Yeah, right. Wow. Okay, so let's have a look at a few things. That, that's one side of it, the revenue side. So let's have a yep. look at a few things there. In Japan, the percentage of large companies that are foreign-owned is 2.5%. Wow. In America, it's 12 and a half. In Britain, it's 12.4 or whatever it is, somewhere around the same. So America, so Australia, 90%. Yeah. That means that our large companies are basically not paying tax in this country. Yeah. It also means that a foreign-owned company can – and by the way, the reason for that is Menzies' double taxation legislation, which was introduced in 1953. So – it also means that an Australian foreign, uh, Australian-owned company pays 30% company tax on its profits. So mm. straight away, it's at a 30% disadvantage to its foreign competitors in this country. Yeah. It also means small business is paying 30% tax, so they're at a disadvantage. Yeah. If you look at what's happening under COVID, it's smashing the small businesses. Yes, 100%. We're destroying our taxation base because the largest employer of people in this country is small business. Yep. So we're, we're, we're funding, you and I, taxpayers, are funding foreign multinationals to come in here, use our education system or the product from our education system, use our infrastructure, use our defence forces guarding the Northwest Shelf assets that they own and not paying for it. Chevron, the world's largest tax avoider, will never pay tax for its Northwest Shelf gas. When our Northwest Shelf gas is exported to Japan, for example, which is a big customer, the Japanese take $3 billion in import duties from it. Mm. We get mm. bugger all. Mm. And so we're exporting our fundamental assets that are dwindling assets and we're not getting much for it, which is insane. We pay more. We pay among the highest gas prices in the world and yet we've got this abundant gas that we're exporting. Mm. This is yeah. insane. Now, if we look at the other side, the taxpayer who does pay, Joe Hockey said uh, about 2015 when he was treasurer, he said a typical person in Australia works from January to June to pay taxes. 
mm-hmm. and then lives off July yep. to December, about 50%. He was just being illustrative. Yeah. You said more than 50%. In I've got these figures from someone. I've yet to verify them, but they came from, he believes, the ABS back in ni- late 1990s, early 2000. A person on the average weekly income, which today is about 80, uh, sorry, average annual income, which today is yeah. about $80,000, yeah. pays about 68% of their income to government in the form of rates, levies, charges, special charges, taxes, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that you're working from Monday to mid-morning Thursday to pay government. Mm-hmm. And I've never heard it before. Only I've said this, but you've said it. Yep. So we all have been taught ever since we were so high that the biggest purchase of our life is housing. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. It's government. Yeah. And are you getting value? No, we're not. No. No, long way from it. But governance is atrocious. So you then ask the question, well, let's have a look at some individual components. Bread. 50% of the price of a loaf of bread is tax. Yeah. That means the effective tax rate is 100%. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The cost of a house, 50% of that is tax. That means the effective tax rate is 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. That's with what you're paying for that with what's left after you've paid your income tax. Yeah. The the um, the tax within in a, in a liter of petrol when it was about a dollar twenty, so it varies with the price, was about seventy percent. Yeah, which means your effective tax rate at around about a dollar twenty a liter is two hundred and thirty percent. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. So this is ridiculous. Mm. So we need comprehensive tax reform because this is deterring investment, is deterring hard work, is deterring any incentive to get ahead. I'm going to pause you because I agree with half of what you said and I disagree with half of what you said. And this is the first time we've really disagreed. So let's have some fun with this. Um, You're absolutely right that multinational companies are operating in Australia and not paying taxes in Australia. As a through and through capitalist, I don't see that as a problem. The problem is that the Australian companies are. The problem is the disparity between them. It's not the fact that they're not paying tax. It's the fact that the Australian companies are. Correct. So my solution would be very much focused on reducing the amount of money being spent and reducing the amount of tax being paid by the Australian companies. Now, unfortunately, that's the hard road. The easy road is to then try and apply tax to the multinationals. And I wouldn't support that because I don't think that's a step in the right direction. The right direction is to try and reduce the tax burden on the Australian companies, large and small, uh, whether it's GST, uh, payroll tax, uh, income tax on the actual workers themselves, all the various fees and charges we pay we need to be focused on reducing the cost of doing business, which includes taxes, a huge part of the cost of doing business for those that are paying the tax rather than playing this jealousy game of, well, I pay 50%, so they should pay 50% too. No, you shouldn't be paying 50% in the first place. That's where I would come at on, on the data that you've just given. Yeah, I, I agree with you entirely on the, on, on the statement that we need to reduce what we're spending. Yeah. Um, and that, by the way, won't necessarily mean a cut in services. If we look at the the expenditure right. on um, on Aboriginals, most of that yep. money goes to the Aboriginal industry, right. which is yep. white lawyers, black lawyers, white consultants, yep. black consultants, mostly mm-hmm. white. Mm-hmm. Um, government agencies. We get a whole bunch of crony organisations in the middle. So you and I, as taxpayers, and everyone watching, spends 
billions, tens of billion dollars a year on the yep. Aboriginal industry, but the Aboriginals on the ground in Cape York, on Lockhart River, on Aracoon, on Kaunyama are getting bugger all. Yeah. And it's an absolute disgrace the way those people are living. Yeah. But it's not because of you. It's not because of me. It's not because our ancestors treated them badly. And they did in some areas. We know that. Yeah. Yep. You're not going to be held accountable for that. But where what I do hold us all accountable for is the ongoing patronizing paternalistic approach yeah. we're yeah. doing now and allowing government to get away from get away with yep. it. So the expenditure side has to be looked at and, and that can be done. Um, but it needs a bit of guts. Now Pauline and I will call out welfare seekers seekers. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right about um when more when more people are on government tit, it's very hard to get them off. You know, Barry Jones, remember him, pick a box champion, very, very intelligent. He was president no, of the Liberal, uh, Labor Party. Okay, very no, intelligent man, genuinely intelligent. He was quiz show, champ- quiz show champion, BP pick a box when I was a kid. Very, very bright, impressive intellect. He went to politics and he was a bit um, bit of a softy, but he was pretty good overall. He'd be more genuine than most of the politicians in there. I think he retired from being an MP before he joined the, the before he became president of the Labor Party. I might be wrong. But anyway, when he was president of the Labor Party, he wrote mm. an article in the Weekend Australian I read, and he said something along these lines. We enacted policy, immigration policy, to bring boatloads of Vietnamese into the country. Mm-hmm. This is a very positive story about the Vietnamese, by the way. But he said, we brought them in here because they'd be poor and they'd be Labor voters. Mm. He said, the bastards (laughs) used their initiative and became small business owners and voted for the Liberal Party. (laughs) (laughs) But what I'm saying is that is a conscious choice by the Labor Mm. Party to get Mm. more voters who would vote Labor, they thought. And that's what goes on, especially in the Labor Party. They've done that time and time again. The Greens do the same. That's destroying our country. Fortunately, the Vietnamese turned out to be wonderful people, hardworking people, and contributed so much to our country. So and, and this is probably another area where where myself and, and One Nation diverge. I am I'm a libertarian in the extreme sense. I'm an open borders libertarian, right? I, I, I don't believe that we have the, you know, we've talked a couple of times over this discussion about the difference between what's what's moral and what's legal. Uh, legally, we have the right to control who comes into the country and under what circumstances they come, et cetera, as sort of the famous quote goes. Um, morally, I, I, I don't, I am one of those, one of those softy, greeny, lefty, whatever you want to call me, <laughs> um, people who says we're human beings on planet Earth. And I don't think we actually have the right to turn around. If someone's going to come here, I don't think we have the right to say, oh, no, you can't come in here. Now, we don't have to give them our welfare, and I don't think our welfare should be given even, even to Australians, but that's another, another story. You know, it's, it, there's, there's a number of other layers to this, but I think fundamentally I, ha- I have a very hard time making a moral case for restricting immigration. And, and overwhelmingly, when we have a large influx of people from a specific country, whether it's the Vietnamese or before them it was the, the Italians and then the, um, the Lebanese, then there was the Vietnamese and now it's the, the Sudanese, there's this big scare that happens at the time. And I grew up in the northern suburbs of Melbourne and I remember the scare around the Lebanese, the Lebanese street gangs, right? Now what's happened? The street gangs are gone. There's nothing, there's no issue with them. They've integrated into our society and, and they're invisible, you know. Um, the same things happened with the Vietnamese. I lived in um, St. Albans, which is a western suburb of Melbourne, heavily Vietnamese dominated. No problem, right? I, I lived among them. I shopped among them. I worked in that area. No problem. 
Right now, we've got the big scare about the Sudanese. And yeah, there are certainly some Sudanese individuals who are causing some big problems and they need to be dealt with accordingly, according to our laws about what you're allowed to do and what you're not. But that doesn't mean that we, that doesn't give us a justification in my view, from a moral standpoint, to say those people aren't allowed to come. So that's probably another point where we might we might well, diverge let, on our let, views. Let's discuss that because yeah. um, we, we talked a minute ago, a little while ago, about the three three elements of governance, which is yep. uh, trusteeship for the values mm -hmm. of the country, governorship, mm -hmm. which is about the future of the country, and stewardship, which is about managing the resources, managing the country. Yeah. Um, the values are extremely important. The culture of an entity, like a, a company, the most significant driver of productivity is the culture. People don't mm. argue that anymore. That's, mm. that's, that's just accepted. Mm. Um, and it's very difficult to change culture, but it's something that has to be managed. Companies pay enormous attention, uh, good companies, uh, very well-led companies, pay enormous attention to that because it is the driver of their productivity. It's their secret competitive advantage. It mm. can't be copied instantly. So the, the values are extremely important. That means, and, and that, that's one side, put those three aside for a minute. The second side is that human society is based on, the organization of human society is based on two fundamental units. One mm. is the family and one is the nation state. The nation state is extremely important. So is the family. The UN is about smashing both down. The UN wants to install an unelected socialist global governance with dictated. Mm. The UN basically wants to take us back to feudalism. We yeah. will own the land. You will work for us for bugger all. Yeah. You will That's own nothing and you will be happy. <laughs> Thank you. So the nation state is extremely important. I believe that the Americans got it right and then got it wrong. When, when they had their war of independence in 1776, mm. they looked at Europe and said, geez, we don't want that mess. Central banks controlling central governments. So they yeah. formed a federated feder, uh, they formed a federation of sovereign independent states, 13 at the time, mm. I think, when they first started. Mm. And that's given us the model for our country. Our country is a combination of Westminster system and the British and the and the American system. But the Americans also said central government can be evil because it's got no competition. So that's they right. said deliberately Monopoly. enshrine exactly. I'm glad you see that. Very few people do. Most let's give most services into the states and the states, mm. the United States has got different taxation systems around the country. I love yeah. that. Yes. Um, because it's competition between the what states. you said before, competitive federalism. Right. You know, Joe Bioki Peterson abolished death duties in this country. And what happened? Mm. Uh, people, sorry, he abolished death duties in, in Queensland. Australia. What happened was yeah. that people uh, retired to Queensland because when they died, they left more money to their kids. That's right. So they That's actually right. moved to Queensland to die. Yeah. You know? But the yeah. Gold Coast took off. Yeah. And, and Joe's and, and the state state boomed partly because and, of that. And but that's then one what of the happened? reasons why we need more states in Australia. And I support Tim Quilty in his effort to get a, a, a exit, a regional exit from uh, a new state in between uh, along the Murray River in between New South Wales and Victoria. I think more, if we had 10 states in Australia, we'd be much better off or 20 states in Australia. Anyway, yeah, sorry, I, I'm distracted. I, I'd, I'd, I'd argue with you on that one, but not, not prepared to at the moment because I, I don't understand what you're saying. I understand I, I, basically I've, I've what you're saying. The conversation. No, yeah. no. Um, it is important because arguing for st more states only diverts from the real issue, which is the lack, which is the enormous power that the federal government has sucked out of the states. You okay. will fix, you that's, will fix Melbourne and Victoria if you give them the power back because then what happens is – am I echoing? No. Um, no then what happens is 
then what happens then is it's like um oh, i'm getting an echo here you're sounding clean to me i'm, I'm not okay. hearing an echo on my end yeah okay i can any anyway so so what happens if if you give power back to the states it's been taken from the states our, our government by the way looked when when our forefathers of our nation uh, got together and formed the constitution they looked at america and loved some of that they looked mm -hmm. at the westminster system and liked some of that and they amalgamated got a very good in my opinion constitution um but very soon afterwards the states started having their power stripped and are going yes. to the, the the Commonwealth government now. When Joe Bielke Peterson abolished his uh, the, our death duties up in Queensland, the other states had to too to keep their people there. When yeah. South Australia trashed its economy and its energy sector, people left the state. Businesses left the state. But now what we've got with the GST is competitive welfareism, not competitive federalism. Yes, where the best I, best. Uh, so we've now got Western Australia bankrolling the rest of the country. I mean Queensland. Has blessed is blessed with resources. We've got wonderful climate. We've got a huge diversity of what we can do. We're rich. Yeah, we get more GST than we than we than we uh, take pay. in. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, you know, and that's what the Labor government has done in this state. Yeah, it's what the Labor started, and Liberals are now continuing in South Australia. Is what Tasmania has become dependent upon. So we're destroying our country. What we need to do is make the make the states stronger. And then you won't need regional because what will happen is Dan um, Andrews will be found out because people will start leaving and going to New South Wales and Queensland. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I, I agree with the first part of that. We've got to return power back to the states. We've got to return. To me, as a, as a libertarian, you've got to devolve power down to the lowest practical level. Yes. As close as possible to the people that are affected by the decisions. You want the decisions being yes. made as close as possible to the people affected by the decisions. Um, to me, that is an argument in favour of more states. But we can lay that aside for now. I've completely diverted the conversation away from tax, which is where <laughs> we started here. So let's get back to that and then let's finish because we are pushing now three and a quarter hours and it's been wow. enormous fun. We've got hundreds of people with us still watching. Um, so let's get back to tax and then let's finish on that and let's pick this up in a couple of months. Well, tax. And then let's have a look at the third component of tax, which is so-called tax reform. Yeah. This is where the parties come in again detrimentally. Uh, what's my first example here? Oh, the first example is GST. Paul Keating came that close as mm. treasurer under Bob Hawke to en enacting a GST. He's the mm. one who started the debate in this country in, yeah. in, in, in real earnest. Yeah. Bob Hawke was about to be supporter of the GST. At the last minute, he collapsed and the wheels fell yeah. off the tax cart and Keating yeah. was really pissed off. <laughs> now, having said that, John Hewson became leader of the of the LN of the Liberal Nationals, yep. and he then floated the GST. Yeah, and who destroyed him on it? Paul I know Keating. He lost. It Paul, was Paul Keating, Keating destroyed okay. him. Paul Keating became leader of the uh, of the Labor government, and he destroyed opposition. Uh, he destroyed Hewson's campaign. Hewson lost the so-called unlosable election. Yeah, yeah, and he did it over the GST. Keating just relentlessly criticised the GST. So there's yeah. the number one proponent of the GST putting all of his integrity aside just to yeah. win an election. Yeah, That is disgraceful. Now we go to someone who I, I, I've got a lot of respect for, it seems, but I don't know him, so I don't really know. Peter Costello. There was a, a flat tax mooted. Okay? And we haven't yeah. done the costings on that, so I, I'm not going to come out in support of I, it, but it's got a, a lot it. of merit. I'd love it. 
We've, it's got a lot of merit. It needs to be costed before I can support it, but it's got yep. a lot of merit. It, it's the best that I've seen, but I, I yep. can't endorse it until I see the costings. Sure. Um, so so, so uh, it, Queensland has developed it. They presented it to uh, Costello, and he put it in his top shelf uh, because later on we know that. Um, and someone then later on asked him, where is it? And he, uh, that's right. That's right. This This particular person was making a presentation in Brisbane of which Costello was attending, and um, they asked him, what do you think of the tax policy? We gave it to you. Gee, I really like it, but I've got to admit that I haven't read it. I'll have to take it out of my top drawer and get it. Okay. Yeah. In the meantime, a red-headed woman was taking off in the polls in Queensland, Pauline yeah. Hanson. These people <laughs> got to her, mm. and she, in, in those days, was new to politics. Yeah. So she didn't have it costed, but she came out and support. It makes common sense, and she goes yeah. with things that make common sense. Nowadays, yeah. she'll say, "Let's cost it first. Yeah. So, so she came out and support. Okay. Immediately, John Howard tore into her about because both both the Labor Party and the Liberal Party were terrified of Pauline Hanson. She got twenty three percent of the vote in Queensland within two years. She yeah. resonated with the it's public. Extraordinary. John Howard changed the voting system from from optional preferential to which is true preferential to compulsory yeah. preferential just to get at her just to make sure BD they got ended up with the votes yeah abbott so subsequently apologized to pauline but he, he was the attack dog he was he was john howard's fix-it man and yeah. howard was reportedly told abbott to get her now yeah. beatty is the one who did the nasty stuff and she, he's yeah. the one who got her jailed but anyway so costello then launched into tearing apart the transaction tax. So yeah. what I'm saying is if you propose a tax system, you will be distorted, misrepresented, vilified yep. because 100%. if it's very, very good, the political opponents will, will know they'll lose votes. So they've got to tear sure. you apart before they tear it apart and, and find it. So what we've got to do is very carefully I believe, get three rough stages in comprehensive tax reform. We need comprehensive tax reform. It's affecting families. It's affecting investment. It's infecting, it's infecting um, households. It's destroying businesses. Mm. It's the most destructive system in the it's, country. So what I believe is, is we, have, we have to, first of all, get established that taxation is a serious problem affecting all of our lives. Mm -hmm. We have to get agreement on that. And I've mm -hmm. taken this approach. I call it the top-down, not the top-down approach, the broad to the narrow Yep. So you get general agreement on the principle that we need taxation mm -hmm. reform. Yep. Then you go to the next stage, and I've done this industrially, it works. So you go to the next stage and you say, instead of arguing about the details, because we can always argue about that, Sure. let's Endlessly. argue about the fundamentals, the principles yep. that would guide a good taxation system. It's got to be transparent. It's mm -hmm. got to be fair. It's mm -hmm. got to be rattle off the others. Yeah. Um, well, efficient. And, it, it can't impose a large overhead just in administrating and calculating what your tax burden is. Correct. And that, by the way, is another advantage of the transaction tax. Well, it's and, so and easy. The flat tax, both. But that's the same, similar thing. So, um, so you, you get agreement on the principles. And once you get agreement on the principles, the system falls out. Yeah. So rather than argue about the systems and cause yeah. a political uh, assassination, you... Yep get agreement that we need to do it. You then get agreement that on the principles and then the system falls out of that. Yeah. So that's my three points on tax. Look, that's excellent. And, and in broad terms, I agree. I, I, all of that is, is absolutely fantastic. Um, 
the simplification of the tax system, we are we are spending a fortune every year in compliance, in accountants. Now, accountants are necessary. Any business needs to have someone looking after their books. They need to know where they're at. That's the scorecard, right? The, the money is the scorecard for a business. So they, they're going to have to still pay an accountant. But the tax aspect of accounting is an incredible burden, an incredible cost. You multiply the cost by every single small business in this country, and we are paying a fortune. Well, think about the talent that's being wasted. We, we yeah. should be... You look at the resources we've got. Out South Korea is killing us competitively, uh, and, yeah. and what are uh, you know? Their people are engineers. I'm, I'm. They sure have accountants, but we've got so many accountants here focusing on how to protect money from the tax department that we should be focusing on how we can make our businesses efficient to compete with the the Taiwanese, Correct. compete with the Koreans. Correct. This is an incredible waste of the human resource. Uh, the the cost of, of the current system is astonishing. And actually, I've got a guest coming up. I haven't locked in which week he's going to be, um, but he's an economist, John Humphreys, uh, and a man, uh, he's actually a friend of mine and someone that I've had a lot to do with over the years in terms of conferences, libertarian conferences. And that yeah, sort of good stuff. man. And I plan to be grilling him on economics and grilling him on taxation and that sort of thing. So this tax conversation is going to continue. And then sometime shortly after that, I would love to have you back again. Uh, someone's just made the comment, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to get another politician giving us this time, thanks to both of you, from Philip Scotty. 100%, Philip. And and I want to end on this. Malcolm, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Uh, and I, I knew you to be from spending three days cooped up in an aeroplane with you. <laughs> I knew you to be one of the good guys. And you've really shown that to us tonight. You are forthright. You say what you mean. Uh, you've been incredibly generous with your time and your thoughts and your your feedback and helping me to think through things as well. So I think tonight has been absolutely sensational. It's been one of the most enjoyable three three hours and 20 minutes uh, that I've spent. <laughs> We've set a new record for a slow chat. I mean, I know slow is in the name, but three hours and 20 minutes is still pushing it. Um, but Malcolm, you've been a wonderful guest and I'm, I'm really, really grateful to you for your time for your intellect and for your answers and for the thought-provoking conversation that we've had. So I'm going to call it there. We're going to call it a night, but thank you so much. You're most welcome, Topher. Any time for you, mate. I love what you're doing. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I will take you up on that in another month, maybe two. I said a couple of months and then the comments got filled up with people saying, no, it's got to be a couple of weeks. <laughs> so we, we will coordinate together and find a time in between sitting weeks and everything else when, you, when you're able to do this again. And clearly, uh, we still have a lot more that we have yet to talk about. So thank you so much. Tonight's been wonderful. Thank you to everyone that's been watching. Uh, if you love what I'm doing here with the slow chats and if you're familiar with my other work, can I just ask you to go to a place called subscribestar.com. Uh, I'll just see if that's there. Yep, I'm just dropping into the comments now. Subscribestar.com forward slash Field. It's literally launched today. It's the first time I've ever asked for any kind of ongoing financial support. I've fundraised for specific projects in the past, but it's the first time I'm ever asking for people to actually help me to keep doing what I'm doing because I do want to ramp it up. Obviously, if I run for politics, I'll shut it all down again, uh, but I, I don't know where I'm going yet with that, and that wasn't supposed to be a public conversation, but anyway, it is what it is. I'm going to um, make an advertisement here. Okay. Taxpayers and people who are watching the show fund the ABC. People who have subscriptions to the commercial networks, you're funding them. This yep. is a far more beneficial outlet for news and opinion than either of those two other streams. The legacy media is dead. This is the stuff that's, that's the future. Thank you. That's, that's very kind, Malcolm. Um, so support me if you want to. Don't if you don't or if you can't. Please, if you're in a tight spot, please don't, okay? It's 
just look after your family. Your responsibility is with them first and foremost. So look after them. Uh, but I plan to bring you a lot more interesting guests. And uh, obviously, we are going to be having another chat, Malcolm. So I look forward to look that forward to it. already. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We're going to call it a night. All the best. Good night. Cheers.